I'm doing three text messages a week, making 20 grand. I experienced sexual abuse. I think I was about eight, eight and a half. He fell forward in front of me and I ran behind him. I was stamped on the back of his head. Had my first appearance in court at 12 years old. What come next is probably what saved my life at this point. Until you've truly experienced hardship or trauma, it's very difficult to appreciate what comes on the polar opposite side of that. The simplest way to change where you're at is to change your environment. From the minute we stepped down the steps off the easy jet, we were already under surveillance. And my first day in prison was my birthday. If you want to be anywhere in life whatsoever, it is almost impossible to do it on your own. I've gone on to do all this positive stuff and all this charity work, and they still thought, let's make an example out of him. You've turned your life around inside three or four years to go from prison to about two million pound plus net worth. I've gone from associating with gang members to now having dinner with politicians and PhDs and celebrities, and I'm, I'm making a difference in the world. First things first, guys, before we get started with this podcast, do me a solid favor. And subscribe to this on whatever platform you're listening to it right now. Whether that's YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. I'd appreciate if you just hit that subscribe button. And it lets me know that the content that I'm putting out for you guys is hitting your ears at the right time. Much love. This podcast is sponsored by contentremover.com. So whether you're looking to remove any images, videos, search results, fake Instagram accounts, get in touch with us at contentremover.com. Welcome to the very first Frankie Lee podcast from my very own UK apartment and you guys are in for a treat today. I've got a man that's gone from, you know, growing up on a council estate, getting involved in a hell of a lot of trouble in, in his younger days to having three, three unbelievable gyms in Liverpool, some of the biggest in the space building a clothing brand, turning his whole life around from from coming from like the gang culture side of things into, uh, into being an entrepreneur. Nick Capo, welcome to my apartment and welcome to the show, my man. Thank you, brother. My pleasure to be here. Mate, it's, uh, it's an honour to have you here, man. And obviously your journey's been one hell of a spicy one. Let's just, let's just say that. I mean, I want to to give people the full the full story and, and obviously everything that you've been through uh, from from a child to now and everything you're doing entrepreneurially i want to i want to start obviously at the beginning and start in in what it was like growing up on a council estate in liverpool and everything you went through as a kid i had quite a troubled youth and that was down for the most part that's down to the fact that my the age difference between me and my mom was so short she got pregnant with me at 15 had me at 16 that disappeared at 18 months in <clears throat> You know, so we, we were alone for most of it. She was alone, you know, single parents, working in the care service, didn't have a whole lot of money. We were in a, a one-bedroom one apartment, well, one-bedroom flat on a council estate. Um, and it, it, it was tough, you know, because she hadn't, she hadn't developed into an adult herself. And obviously there's this new, this new child come, you know, coming into her life and all this responsibility at once. And, you know, I, I suffered from a lot of neglect and... You know, there was a period of time where I held that against her and then looking back on it now, I don't think I'd have done any better if I was if I was her age. But, you know, that doesn't take away from the fact that, it you know, it was really difficult and she didn't really have a lot of time for me. And like I said, we you know, we were alone for the most part, but she, you know, she kind of let me do whatever it was that I wanted to do. And I was a difficult kid to control, you know, mostly because of the environment. So she it got to the point where the relationship that we had was more of a brother and sister relationship more than it was, you know, any, any kind of you know, parental guidance. So I'd be, say, seven, eight, nine years old, and I'd be out on the council estate till 11 o'clock at night doing whatever I wanted to do, hanging around with guys who were, like, 16, 17, 18 years old, up to all, all kinds of mischief. Um, and it, it was around that same time that I experienced sexual abuse. I think I was about eight, eight and a half, maybe. 
and there was a lad that lived on the same on the same street as us on the estate. He was about twice my age, so he'd have been sixteen, maybe seventeen. I'd have been about eight years old. And that went on for about eighteen months, to the best that I can remember. Um, and the only reason that stopped eventually is because we moved out the area. And I think, from what I recall, and I've compartmentalized a lot of it from, from the bits that I can remember. I even remember at one point my mum walking in on it happening in our flat. And it was kind of like she, she she didn't even see it. Like she was so disengaged with what was actually happening. And still to this day, like, you know, we had a a very broken relationship and then we rekindled that later in life. And, you know, it's almost like she's deliberately blocked out everything that happened and is in complete denial about, you know, what it is that we both went through. And, you know, it was it it was difficult for me at the time, but once we moved out the area, I kind of blocked that out and didn't think about it for probably the best part of twenty years, and that just sat there in the you know in the, in, in the back of my mind, and I never really paid it much attention until until much later in life. But I went on from we moved to the new area at like eleven years old. We moved to a different estate, which was a you know a nicer area. It was more of a a busier busier part of town. There was more going on because where we were was quite secluded, and it was you know there was. I used to spend a lot of time in the woodlands there, you know, with all the older lads and it wasn't a great environment to grow up in. But when we moved, <coughs> I got into a new social circle and I went, started high school and I got into a lot of trouble very quickly at high school. I was violent. I couldn't concentrate in class and, you know, I was really disruptive and they... Do you reckon a lot of that violence was down to the abuse and you wanted to fight back? Yeah, I mean, later in life when I've unpacked that situation, you know, that that's that's clearly been a, a staple, you know, that that's probably the catalyst for what what went on to be a lot of my issues but at the time I wasn't aware of that because I compartmentalized it so much and I buried it so deep it didn't even register that that was a possibility at the time and I had a lot of trouble in school and I think I got to about 12 years old and I got into a fight outside of school and I I got into a a confrontation with a lad um, in a different estate and I remember chasing him. This was on like a Friday night. It was only about 12 years old, second year of high school. I remember chasing him down this street and I'd just caught up with him because I was quite quick at the time. And I've, I've swiped him from the back of the legs and he's gone down face first. And I hadn't, I didn't think it through, but what I went to do is, you know, I, I, he, he fell forward in front of me and I ran behind him. I was stamped on the back of his head. I can't remember how many times, I don't know whether it was once, twice, three times, I couldn't tell you, but he lost his full row of front teeth. And I, once it happened, I just ran, ran and ran and ran. And it must have been 10 miles from, from my home. And it took me forever to get back. And by the time I got back, within 30 minutes, the police had arrived and I got arrested for uh, grievous, grievous bodily harm for GBA. This is a 12 years old. So <clears throat> I then had my first appearance in court at 12 years old. And the charge was either going to be GBH or ABH, which is a, a lesser charge on the basis of they tried to glue his teeth back in, and if that was successful, they were going to reduce the charge to ABH. But the whatever it was that they tried to implement had failed, so he'd lost he'd lost his teeth. They couldn't reset them, so the charge stood at GBH. And during this time, one of the witnesses to the fight was in my in my class in school in my in my form. So they had to segregate me from the rest of school because of this this witness issue. You know, there was a conflict there, so they removed me from mainstream school and put me in what they used to call the the unit, which was a Porter cabin on the side of the school grounds that was surrounded by big spiky metal fences. It had cages on the windows, and it was where they put the the troublesome kids. Yeah, 
So all that done for me was take me out of the normal environment, even though I wasn't so, you know, such as a, I wasn't a normal child and I wasn't fitting in so much, but they'd taken me out of a, a relatively normal environment and put me in with the rest of the bad kids. And all that, all that served to do was to exacerbate the issues that I already had, because then you're, you know, association breeds similarity, doesn't it? And you know, you've gone from being a, a bad kid in the younger years in school to mixing with the bad kids in the older years in school. So it, it just amplified the issues that I already had and encouraged the kind of behavior and the bravado and the ego, it just exacerbated that tenfold. So that, you know, that made me a lot worse. And because rather than treating the issues of the, of, of, of what the kids are going through at the time, they're, they're basically saying all of your band together and just putting you in a room. Yeah. Which, which, which was a, a recipe for disaster from, from day one, obviously that I couldn't tell you what the best alternative to that was. All I can say from personal experience is that's probably the worst thing that you could possibly do. And obviously it, Later in life, going to prison, which you know we, we will get to, all that all that serves to do is make things a lot worse. Because again, association breeds similarity. You take someone who's a, a four out of ten on the scale of nuisance or you know trouble or trauma or whatever it is that they're doing, and you put them with masses of people who are further in life who are two, three, four times worse than that. It just encourages it, encouraging it. So from there, things got really difficult, and I got a lot worse and. I think school excluded me 26, 27 times. It was it was ridiculous. Fighting week in, week out. And it got to the point of 14 where they said, at 13, sorry, where they said, look, you, he's too violent to have in school. We don't know what to do with him. They tried to put me in a, a different segregated school. I refused to go. Mum tried to get me to go and she couldn't she couldn't control me. There's nothing she could do. I mean, what what can you do if you're a, if you're a mother who's only 15 years older than her son and I say, I'm not going to school. Make me go to school. What are you going to do? Yeah, by the time by the time you're that age, you know, at the 15, 16 year old, you've got too much strength to. Yeah, exactly. And then you enter the realms of of abuse, don't you? Do you know what I mean? If she tries to physically make me go to school, then she's she's a culprit herself for being penalised for abusing a child. So you know, you kind of at a deadlock. And it got to the point there where it was like, look, I'm going to let you do whatever you want to do because I have no choice otherwise. But I'm going to stop doing anything for you, any of my parental responsibilities forget about it. So from 13, she stopped cooking, stopped providing for me, didn't provide food, didn't cook, didn't clean, didn't give me anything whatsoever. I mean, she was never really particularly generous in terms of her compassion towards me or, you know, her, her general parenting skills, which again, I can understand that now because of the age difference, but you know, the small amount of support that I was getting from her, she retracted that entirely because it was like, look, you're not going to do me any favors. You're not going to listen to what I'm going to say. So I'm going to stop doing anything for you. And then that, how did that make you feel in, in regards to your relationships with not only her as a woman, but other women? I mean, it, it, it's, that was difficult. And the only, the, the only saving grace there that didn't make me entirely resent that kind of family structure was that I had a strong relationship with my nan. So at 13, when mum stopped providing for me, it got to the point where I, I bonded with somebody else in school who was in a very similar situation. His parents had stepped away from him. Mum and dad had split up. His mum had completely just left him to his own devices and he was struggling the same way we were. He was from a really poor family. And we, we kind of bonded together and he ended up coming to live with me. And we shared two mattresses on the floor and they were, they were old mattresses. We didn't have a bed. We didn't have sheets for the bed. It was just two battered mattresses on the floor covered in stains with springs sticking out of them. But we, we made the most of what we have and... We used to go stealing from 
stealing from the back of restaurants looking for food so we had like a local uh, Italian restaurant and we'd go around the back and steal big sacks of potatoes and we'd go up to the local Tesco through the day and purposely damage some cans if you if you have a pack of I don't know a pack of six baked beans and you burst one can they just throw her out the back so at 10 o'clock when the Tesco Express closed we'd climb over the back of the gate and we'd steal from the bins so we're stealing tins of beans from the back of Tesco sack of potatoes from the back of the Italian restaurant and that's kind of how we got by and we went as as much as we were clearly in a, in an intense state of poverty, we weren't particularly unhappy because we kind of had each other and we and we we fed off each other. I suppose as well, you didn't know any different, did you? No, and 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 you know, looking around yourself on a council estate, there's nobody that's living the life. Do you know what I mean? Everybody's struggling. You're just on different 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 degrees of struggle. You know, you're you're you're, you're suffering to the extreme, but your next door neighbor's still suffering. Just you know, there's just different levels. You know, so we, we, we got by and we did okay and we had each other and that was really important for us at the time. And school had given up on us and this was before, this is just before the era of them penalising parents for truancy. So school kind of just said, do what you're doing. You know, we're, we're going to tell you that you should be in. We're going to send you a letter saying you, your attendance is 13% and my mum would just read the letter and go, fuck off, I'm not interested. You know, so I, I had all this flexibility and... <clears throat> What come next is probably what saved my life at this point. I ended up in with a, a new group of friends who just started doing what was then known as, as parkour or free running. It went on to be called. It was in its infancy then, and this is this this was a discipline that had just come out of the south of France. There's some some guys over there who essentially you know, the easiest way to explain it is is the art of movement. It was getting from point A to point B as quickly as possible in the urban environments. So you're jumping across rooftops, climbing through windows, up drain pipes, and we kind of adapted that to our own kind of environment and we were still very young and we were still we were still little tykes at the time so it was okay let's get chased off the police and get away as quickly as we can so we'd cause mischief and the police would chase us and we got really really fast and good at climbing and good at knowing the, the you know the back alleys and the rooftops and you know it started menacing for the first kind of six months and we were getting chased by the police and they couldn't catch us they had helicopters after us horses after us we were an absolute nuisance but we were thriving off the adrenaline behind it we were getting chased all the time, day in, day out. And, we, you know, we, we knew the routes of the police. We knew where all the cameras were. We knew where they go. We knew how to get away from them. We knew what rooftops to go. And it was, that's how it started. And then I think I got to, I think I got to about 14 and a half. And then the the guys who were, the guys who had latched onto, who would kind of, found this on the internet because this is very early days this is a pre-social media pre-anything else there was maybe one video on youtube in fact it might have even been before that i can't it might have been the internet forums that we found it on the, these very early videos and when i got to about 14 and a half the guys that i'd kind of connected with and jumped in started to take it a lot more seriously and they were a good few years older than me maybe 18 19 and the, the, the idea come about to go to the south of France and, and see these guys who created the, the discipline, who created the sport. <clears throat> and I managed to, to get together the money and, the, you know, the guys were a lot older than me. I was only 14 at the time. And I ended up bunking a train down to London because they'd gone over already and I was left on my own at this point. And I, I was speaking to a guy on the internet forums, a guy from North Carolina who was maybe 10 years older than me. And he's like, why don't you come over? I mean, like 14 at the time, 14 and a half. He's like, why don't you come and meet me in the south of France? Okay, thought not of it. Okay, I'll try and get I'll try and get the money. And I was I was making money at the time, just doing little little deals on the estate. Not nothing drugs at this point, but kind of hustling. So you, were you gang affiliated at this time? Not quite at this point. No, this this 
not gangers in the the thoroughbred gang sense. We we, we did have that kind of gang mentality, but this predated the 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 darker gang culture. So that this was before it had gotten to that point, and I come a little bit later. So we were just hustling at the time, trying to survive. As I say, we were stealing from bins to eat and everything else. We were going on the local golf golf course at night, like the driving range, and bagging up all the balls, and coming back in the morning and selling buckets of balls to people to take the money back, and then going to buy like wholesale sweet chocolate stuff like that to then sell to the kids outside school. So we were making we were making a little bit of money enough to get by. Amongst the, the same time, we just started playing this game online called Legend of Mayor, and it's similar to you've seen like World of Warcraft, MMORPG, yeah, yeah, yeah. that, that 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 type of game. We'd started playing these games online to, to, to kill time because we weren't in school at this point. So we were just, we were just fixated on this game. And it, I created a, a female character. And I can't remember the name of the actual character that I made, but I, I ended up impersonating a female. So I, I'm catfishing from 14 here. And I, I called myself Jessica. I remember finding a, an MSN address on the, on the school bus. I only used to go into school about once a month at this point, but I was on the school bus and there was a scrap of paper on the floor and it was an MSN address. And I've added this this person on MSN, Jess. No, sorry, Laura, her name was. And she was a few years older. She was in her last years of high school. And I remember stealing her pictures off MSN and creating a second MSN account and, and pretend and imitating this girl and pretending to be this female character online. And I ended up in with a group of guys from uh, Qatar. And they were, they were uh, like a cousins of the royal family so they had a lot of wealth and not a lot to do over there and obviously the concept of of talking to a white girl from britain you know that, that was really appealing to them at the time and I'd, I'd spent hours and hours talking to these guys and we'd go on hunting parties and doing quests and whatever else and develop this rapport with them and i knew they had a lot of money and i i i, I can't even remember what got gave me the idea to do this but i said to them look i i'm gonna need to stop playing the game and they were, you know, they were really into this this persona that I'd created at the time. I said, look, I'm going to have to stop playing the game because I'm going to university and I need to fund my student fees and I've got to take on a job and whatever, you know, fed them this big story. And the response I got was, how much do you need? And that was the seed. I'm thinking, oh, hang on a minute, how much do I need? So I'm having a Google, you know, how much university fees, whatever. So I come back to him, I said, look, I need so many thousand. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't silly money. It was like, look, I need two and a half, three thousand pounds or something like this. The guy's just responding to me. He's like, okay, no problem. Send me the details. If I send extra, buy a webcam. So this guy sends me like three and a half grand. It's like three, three and a half grand through uh, Western Union at the time. And I said something about not having an ID or something. So I had to put it in another name. So I gave them my grandmother's name. So they've sent me, they sent me like three thousand, three and a half thousand pounds in my grandmother's name via Western Union. And that was kind of the, from there, I then latch on to different type of groups and I was still, I was doing the same catfish and this is before iPhones and you couldn't get away with it now, not to that degree anyway, because it just, okay, well send me a picture, send me a voice note and FaceTime me. This is before camera phones. So I managed to get away with it for so long. I made quite a bit of money. So this was around the same time that this trip to France come up. So you, so you, how, when you say quite a bit of money, how much money are you talking here? You, you talk, you're talking multiple thousands. You're probably talking across the space of a year. I mean, it, it's obviously not a lot in the grand scheme of things, but for someone who's 14, Who's taking two thousand, three and a half thousand, another fifteen hundred pound? This this is huge money for us. Which, you know, we, we don't get. So you're talking money. what twenty, thirty grand over over the space of a year? That, I mean, that that would probably be overestimating. I'd probably say about ten grand over the space of this this year. But at fourteen years old, coming from a council estate where you've had no money and getting a pound off your mum to go to the chippy for chips is a, is a once in a six month thing. Do you know what I mean? That's a big deal. So this this was huge. So we had a bit of money at the time, and this opportunity to come to France or to go to France to meet this American guy, come up. So I bunked the train down to London 
I met with some other friends that I knew on London from this internet forum. <clears throat> and I got one of them to bunk me onto the Eurostar because I think you needed somebody over 16 at the time to get you onto the Eurostar. And I can't remember the exact logistics of how we, how we managed to pull it off, but he managed to get me onto the Eurostar on my own. And it must have been slightly different at the time because I think you can fly at 14 now. So, I, you know, logistically, I can't remember the precise details, but I remember needing him to get me on for some reason. He gets me on the Eurostar. So I'm now on the Eurostar on my own going from London to Charles de Gaulle to meet this stranger I've met on the internet in, in the suburb in the south of France. And I get to Charles de Gaulle and I'm 14 and a half and I'm looking around and the security guards are traveling in packs. Like the security guards are walking around in groups of five or six. And obviously you get a, you get a feel for it straight away because obviously... When you see Paris on Instagram, you see the Eiffel Tower and it's lit up and it's beautiful, but there's some, there's some ghettos in the south of France, in the south of Paris even. So I get to Charles de Gaulle and sees the first double-decker train for the first time in my life. And, you know, I've never been anywhere. I've never been on holiday with my mum or anything like that. So, so this to well, me this is This is the like, first time you're out of the country. This is the first time I'm out of the country. Yeah, I've never been on holiday with my mum in my entire life. So this is like, wow. It's a whole different world. You know, there's no mobile. I haven't got Google Maps or anything. So I'm asking these random French people, you know, this little kid's coming up to you. It's like home alone. I'm like, you know, where do we, how do I get to here? You know, I don't, I've just got little scraps of paper with where I'm meant to go. So, we, you know, uh, we, we get on the underground. We get to the south of France. <clears throat> I get to this little city called Evry. And I had to walk from, got to Evry. And it was quite late at night. And there's, there's like gangs around. And they could have been harmless. They could have just been groups of good lads. You know what I mean? But you get there and... I'm this little white boy and it's groups of like groups of black lads and on the on on the part of Merseyside that I'm from it it's it, it's predominantly white so this all of this is new to me and it's quite intimidating and it's ten o'clock at night and I've got to walk from every city to this town called Lease and I, I've I've got nobody I've got no direction I've got no map I'm just asking people and looking for signs and I get there and I meet this guy finally do meet this guy from America and he must have been I don't know he was in his early twenties at least. And a really nice guy, don't get me wrong, and I've met him and we went on to meet another group of lads who'd come from Spain to do this, you probably call it a pilgrimage because this is like the origin of the sport. We met these guys from Spain and I'm the odd one out, these are all in their 20s guys who were you know, really disciplined and we met the we met the founders of the sport, this group called uh, the, the Yamakazis, they were called, and we, we met these guys and they were so militant, they were obsessed with, with conditioning and fitness and this is... This is 10 years before the fitness industry was even a thing. And these guys are, are, are militant on doing physical drills. And obviously the only, the only experience I've got in the sport at the time is let's get chased by the police. Let's start at this rooftop, cause mischief, run across the city and get chased by police and cause absolute havoc. And we meet these guys and it's such a different concept entirely. Like it's, They're taking it seriously. They are, yeah. It's all about discipline and physical strength and conditioning and being you know as efficient as possible. And obviously that, that at the time is what you lacked. So it must be quite a draw for you to be, to see this kind of stuff now. Cause Completely. you're like, you didn't, you didn't have a father figure. You've obviously gone through this, this abuse. You've you come through like a single parent family who no one's been able to deal with you. Now you found this passion for this sport that allows you the discipline that you probably were always looking for, but never could find. Yeah. I'd never had that leadership in my life or anyone to say like anyone to even look at and go, that's what I want to be like. And to see these guys, it was inspirational. And they were so, because they were so talented at what I wanted to do, it was a lot easier for me to adopt how they were getting there. Whereas if you'd have come to Liverpool and said, oh, you need to do all these physical drills to get good at this, I'd have gone, get to fuck. But seeing these guys who were who were heroes and how they'd you know, really, really refined their bodies and they'd adopted this, this mentality of discipline is everything and we need to be efficient and you need to take care of your body and you need to stretch and you need to strength train. 
And I was there for, say, 10 days. And again, I'm 14 years old at this point, and I'm doing military drills with these guys in the park. And I'm thinking we're just going to be there climbing rooftops, and they've got me doing squats with people on my shoulders, and we're doing bear crawls and press-ups. And at nighttime, we'd go into the city, and we're climbing. We are climbing across the rooftops, but it, it, everything was, was perfect. And, you know, everything had to be, like, ninja-like. You had to get across as quietly as possible. And we're climbing through up the sides of buildings and past people's bedroom windows and living room windows whilst they're in there. And it's all about finesse. So whereas in Liverpool to you is all about causing as much noise and as much commotion as possible, you've gone exactly. to the true origin of, of free running and you've discovered that everything that you thought free running was, was nothing like that at all. Yeah, it, it's, gone for, it's gone from being a, a, a hobby or a pastime to an art form. And it was, it was beautiful to experience and that's exactly what I needed at that time. And when I come, when I come back from Paris, I was like a completely different person. Like it changed me so much. It was exactly what I needed at that, t- that time. And I've come back and I've kind of... Did you did you learn some self-respect? Definitely, yeah. And it, it gave me purpose. Whereas I had no purpose before, it was just chaos. And there was no kind of end goal. It was just, this is what we're doing right now. And I'm just going to, you know, just... There's no plan whatsoever. Let's just cause chaos, do what we're doing, and just, just thrive off the adrenaline. Whereas then it went into the discipline and the art form. And I, and I come back and I, I had purpose then. I want to get better at this and this is why I want to get better at it. And I, and I really adopted that ethos of efficiency and discipline and physical conditioning. And I then began to preach that to the people that were around me who then adopted it really well. And I ended up then close to a, <clears throat> a group who were on the same kind of wave, wavelength and they had a lot of Their, their family background, they were very religious, and I'm, I'm not a religious guy whatsoever, but they adopted the, the morals that come with, that, that do tend to come with religion and religious families. You know, they were, they were really good people, and everything was about taking care of each other and, you know, being there and supporting each other. And it was very much, it wasn't like a competitive sport, whereas I want to be better than you, and I'm going to do this. And it was, I want you to be better so I can be better and we can be better together. And, you know, we kind of nurtured this community and it, it's gone from me being in all this chaos and, and not having any direction whatsoever to finally feeling part of something for the first time in my life because I've had no family, no community, no nothing. And all of a sudden it's gone from all of this to I know exactly what I want to do. I know how I want to get there. I've got good people around me. I now have a community. We were all on the same level. We were all supporting each other. Did that moment make you want to step away from any crime that you were involved in? Almost entirely, yeah. And that's mainly because the the alpha of the, the group that I'd then ended up with who were, they'd stand us, they kind of stumbled upon this, this, this sport or this art form when we did, but they, we were very different morally because they were the, they were the religious guys and, you know, didn't want any part of that. And we were doing our thing. And when I come back from France, we, we, we really bonded. And the moment, the moment that I remember a lot, when I come back from, from France, I had the discipline side of it, you know, lockdown. And I, I met with the, the alpha of that other group. I was still troubled in school at the time, you know, I, I knew where I needed to go and I didn't really know quite so much how to implement the, the psychological side of it, the mental side of it. And I remember meeting with, with like the, the leader of the other group. We climbed to the top of a local building around ours, high above the, high above the city. And we're looking down, this must've been two, three o'clock in the morning. And I think, I can't remember exactly how old I was, maybe 16. And we sat at the top and I'm talking to him about kind of the troubles that I've been through the last few years. And he was a few years older than me and, I said, I don't really understand how to get out of the rut. I know where I need to go and I know where I've come from and I, and I, and I know the, the physical side of things. 
but I'm not entirely sure how to implement it in my social life. And he's, and as I said, I didn't take him entirely serious because he was religious and I was, I was, I was very much anti-religion at the time. And he said to me, he's like, Nick, look, I want you to try something for me and you're going to think it's silly. He said, but I want you to just trust me on this. He said, I want you to go out your way to be kind and positive to everybody, even the people that aren't that way inclined towards you. And I just looked at him as if to say, you're talking shit. Sounds, sounds like a pretty pivotal conversation to me. It, yeah, it was huge. But I'm looking at him like, he's just quoting some fortune cookie stuff to me. And he, he just looked at me dead straight. Like he didn't, you know, I'm kind of like making a joke about it. And he just looks me dead in the eye. He's like, no, 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 trust me. I want you to go out your way to be to be kind and helpful to everybody. Be helpful to strangers. If somebody gives you a hard time, he's like, don't rise to it. Just, just be a nice guy to everybody. He said, I want you to do that. And I want you to see what happens. And I, and I, and I thought about it for a minute and I'd kind of stopped thinking of it in a in a humorous sense then I'm like what have I got to lose I've just come back from France I've got this physical discipline Danny is and this guy was a phenomenal athlete he went on to be the best in the world like by an absolute mile and he he had a lot of commercial success a lot more than we did even though we went on to be really successful which so he was he was the best free runner that's ever lived I would say ever up, up until maybe the last couple of years where the standards gone up, there was a 10-year, maybe even a 15-year period where he was by far the best in the world. So it was like, well... What was, was his name? Daniel Illabaka, his name was, and he he, he he absolutely smashed it. And I'll you know I, I'll tell you a bit more about that. But he he was... I've just met the, the founders of the sports who've given me the physical side of things, but obviously there was a language barrier there. So adopting the psychological side of things was really difficult. But having this conversation with Danny and him saying... Just try this for me. Just go out and be a good person. Just put some positive energy out and see how it goes. And as I say, my initial reaction was just cut the wishy-washy. I'm not, and he's like, just, just apply it and see what happens. And I come away from it that night and I started applying that. And all of a sudden, my life changed completely. I started being kind to people. I went out my way to help people. Even if, even if there was no self-interest, you know, there was no benefit for me to make whatsoever. I went out my way to be kind to people and be decent and just, you know, really, really try hard. And out of nowhere, I start getting these opportunities. And people really want to get involved with me and they want to bring me along. And it changed my life completely. And it changed the the social network that I had. And it, 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 it I'd gone from being this troubled kid who was just having murder all the time to physically focused, psychologically focused, huge, huge positive network around me. And then the commercial opportunities started to crop up. So we're talking 16, 17 here now, and we're getting like, we were filming videos and this is, this is just as you're approaching the start of YouTube, which was, I think was maybe 2007, 2008. So we start putting content on the internet because we're the first in the country who've adopted this sport. The commercial side of things, the, the, there wasn't a big pool to fish from. So we're getting jobs thrown on us by Red Bull, Adidas, Nike, doing some big music videos like and we're, we're this, this is at 16 17 years of age so i haven't done any schooling whatsoever and just, and literally your criminal side or any any part in criminality at this point has completely stopped because you're fully focused on free running completely i wasn't interested in the slightest in doing anything that it was even you know remotely off brand to what we were doing because we were so focused on on that that team network and and you know really promoting each other's success that was the big focus in the group. If somebody achieved something, because we'd have certain climbs and certain jumps and certain, you know, certain things that you do where that would be your goal for the year and you would drill and drill and drill. And if you nailed that, everybody was genuinely really positive and really happy for you. Like that was a that was a win for everybody. If you won, everybody won. 
everybody would clap if you were successful at something like that. That support network was something that I'd never seen before at all. Because in most sports, it's every man for himself. Yeah. And I, I'd never had that before. I'd never had that team mentality, the family mentality. And, and, and we, we, we excelled so much and we got so much commercial success. And we had sponsorships from, as I say, from Adidas, from Puma, like some of the biggest brands in the world. And we're just a gang of kids off a of council estate. All of a sudden we're on TV and we're with these huge brands, you know, and we're being flown around the world to do these jobs. And it was absolutely mind-blowing. We're on the, we're on the front of, of our local newspaper, you know, the Liverpool Echo, the World Globe, and we're in these, these, these magazines for footwear. And, and people are now looking up to you rather than, you know, feeling like... You, you've done something wrong. You've got people, your kids in your local area that are coming from nothing looking at you saying, you know, I, I want to be like that because you're setting a good example now rather than the example you were previously setting. We did. And we got to like 18. Yeah, about 18, but about middle level 18. And we had gangs and gangs of kids just coming to us of an evening, of a weekend, trying to get involved in what we were doing. And it was like, it was like something out of, out of Pied Piper. We just had dozens and dozens of kids wanting to get involved, just looking for something. Because you've got to remember that around this time is when everything started to drop off in, in a community respect. Like the, the youth clubs went, the British legions went, any kind of community hub that you had, all the funding was being pulled. There was nothing left for anybody. Boxing gyms were getting smashed. Exactly, yeah. Everything was being pulled away. Funding for everything was going. So there was very little left. There was no real direction for kids to, to go down. So we were one of the only positive avenues that you could actually go to and say, well, right, well, this is something really interesting. And these guys are seeing success and we really want to get a piece of this action. So we, we had a, a huge support from the community and we're in the newspaper all the time. You know, we're in the news and you know, we had all the success, all the supporters around us. And that went on till I was about until I was about 20 years old and we'd absolutely smashed it. And I was, I was managing my team at the time. You know, we'd done unbelievable things for our age and I, I got quite badly injured. I had a really bad knee injury and I went to the doctor, seen a specialist and he said, look, Nick, you're going to have to, you're going to have to take some time out. He said, you can either take a year off now or you can keep going and then you're going to need surgery and then you're going to need two, three, four years off. He said to it's entirely up to you what you want to do. Do you want to get another year out of your career or do you want to take some time out and have more longevity? And, you know, it was really hard for me to accept the fact that I was going to have to take a step back from this and just go into like a managerial role. And, you know, I, I thought about it and I thought about it and I thought about it and inevitably I said, I'm going to stop. I'm, I'm just going to step away because I want to do this forever. I want to do this my entire life. This, this is, this is a, a life that I could never have even dreamt of that was even possible to come from where I've come from to, to be doing exactly what I'm doing. And I, I need this. Do, do you believe in any way that you kind of manifested or, or brought about your reality with the, with your mind, with or with any kind of vision boards, or how, or how do you feel that you came into that reality where you've turned your life around to such a respect? I think it was the, the energy that I was putting out, and I'm not one. And this is going to sound disrespectful to those that, that you know that, that, that adopt this ethos, but I'm not one for wishy washy. I don't I don't buy into karma or anything like that. But from a from a hard science, from a psychological perspective, if you, if you are putting out more positive energy to people. If you're giving them your time and you're positive to them, you're given, you're inevitably giving them a, a better response when they're around you. You know, you're, you're enabling them to have a, you know, a, 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 a neurochemical response of dopamine, serotonin. You're good to be around. You're enjoyable. You give people a good vibe and it's going to make them people want to be around you more. Well, you never leave people the same. Like every conversation you have with another human being that person never leaves that conversation the same. They either leave better for the interaction that they've had with you 
or they leave slightly worse. So if you if you focus on every conversation you have with anybody in your life, just trying to leave them a little bit better than how you found them, or at least feeling better than how you found them, then then and you can't do that every time. But if you focus ninety percent of your time there, you 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 tend to get the re- get the results in life that you talk about. Definitely, and, and I think unfortunately for the way that life is, most people subtract from your energy. So when you find somebody that does actually contribute to how you feel in a positive manner, it's addictive. And you want more of that and you want to spend more time with that person. You want them on board with what you're doing. If you've got a vision, you're not going to bring, you're not going to bring on the two, three, four most negative people around you. You're going to bring around the good energy, the motivated people. And I think when I adopted that mentality that Daniel passed on to me of, look, just go out there and just put some good energy into the world. Just be decent with people, be kind with people. The opportunities that come back and the energy that gets reciprocated from these people who, who all of a sudden find you really positive and really motivating to be around that really gave me the platform and the opportunities to then go on and excel. And I think if I'd have carried on in the hole that I was in, if everything was negative and I was, I was, when I was younger, I was a bully and I was violent. Nobody's going to give you opportunities at all. Yeah. And you, and you may have that, you may have that status that, 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 you know, people fear you because you're the, you know, the, the tough guy, the tough kid in school or whatever else, but no one's going to give you an opportunity. So it might all be, all, all be good and well living off that. But I think a lot of that in, in your days and a lot of that anger and a lot of that, um, turmoil came from you getting abused as a child and obviously you didn't probably understand that at the time but you can't I believe at some point in time you 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 were the victim and then you were because obviously you were a victim of the the, the abuse you became a victim in life which attracted you know, if you book, if you stay as the victim you attract more victim problems didn't you so you attract you know the criminality and then you all this kind of stuff because you attract more problems into your life, don't you? But when you switch the mindset to to putting out positivity, your your whole thing changed. How did you over overcome the abuse? Do you think it was just a flick of the switch and you've you've the mindset piece, so to speak, or or how how have, how how would you? Because obviously, there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that may have been abused like you as a child, but have cut have have boxed it off completely and, and and sort of selectively forgotten about it however that abuse triggers reactions in their everyday life and i think it's important that we talk about how you overcame that i think it was having something more positive to focus on and i, and I think and obviously we had a conversation about this yesterday off air I, I think it was having rather than focusing so much on the abuse I mean, again, this you could see this as me compartmentalizing it again, but I think rather than focusing focusing on what happened to me or why it happened to me, what's what's already happened, I think having something to, positive to focus on and kind of create a whole new path, I think that's what really helped me. And if I hadn't have had that, I think I'd have just continued down that self destructive path. And and I did when I come away from that, which which we'll lead on to in a minute. When when I come away from that, I went straight straight back into them self destructive behaviors again. Well, this this is what this is what I'm trying to trying to say, and I don't know. I want to I want to know whether you agree with me on this. And I can't, I can't talk into. I was never abused as a child in the way that obviously you were unfortunately happened. But what I know from speaking to people off this podcast, not on the actual air, about abuse that they've had, the ones that have the ones that have have, have gone and smashed life, so to speak, after being abused, are the ones that understand that what happened to them happened to them it was out of their control they 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 accept it and and understand that that 
if if that didn't happen, then nothing else of the good could have happened in their life in in other respects as well. And they kind of move through it like that. Is is that kind of how you've approached it, or how would you suggest that people move through it? Yeah, I I, I think once I mean, and some people now are never fortunate enough to get beyond the initial trauma. But I think if you once you unpack that experience, you can weaponize that trauma for the bet for the better, and that can be the most motivating and most powerful thing in your entire life. Because until you've until you've truly experienced hardship or trauma, it's very difficult to appreciate what comes on the you know the polar opposite side of that, and that can be one of the most, at least in my experience, one of the most powerful things that you can ever experience is trauma, because a lot of the most successful people in the world, certainly not all of them, but a lot of the most successful people in the world have experienced some form of trauma, be it be it sexual abuse or otherwise. You know, there are there are obviously a vast array of yeah and types this, of trauma, and that's the, and that's the thing you see, no one. Not no one can can say whether something was traumatic to to someone else. I mean, one of the most traumatic things to me in my childhood was the fact that I felt unloved. Right, that to me was a trauma in my head that drove me towards trying to prove everything to everybody. Right, because I felt unloved. Now, no one can tell me that that I didn't I didn't feel that way. But it's how you use it and how you overcome it later in life that allows you to go towards that success. Right, so it's it's, it's just with. with when you take a trauma and you take it as a victimhood mentality trauma and you and you and then you implement that you attract more of that all through your all through your life i think the pivotal point i think you've used it as a fuel and i want anybody that's that's going through any trauma that's listening to this to not get triggered by this into this is not meant to trigger you into terms of like thinking oh you know you frankie doesn't understand nick doesn't understand my trauma it's not meant for that but i'm trying to say to you if you keep if you keep playing that victim then you'll attract more victim problems throughout the whole element of your life. And the opportunities that Nick's speaking about attracting into his life came on the back of the positive energy that he was putting out at the time, right? Yeah. And I just want to—I just want people to understand, really break down what you've said there and how you've changed your life and how you've used that trauma for you rather than against you there. Because if you, it's, it's that it's that piece there that people miss, and and it's, it's so important that people get that. You, it, it can it can disable or it can enable. And the, the, the societal expectation of people who've gone through trauma is is pity. And you yeah. should pity yourself. And that in itself is dangerous. And obviously it, it can sound insensitive to say you shouldn't pity yourself because you've been, you've been through a hard experience and you've experienced hardship. And of course, the, the, there's an element in there where you should take whatever amount of time that you need to, to unpack that and process it as best you can. But it can enable you in, in such a strong way if you don't fall victim to the societal expectation of you have to fail because you've been through trauma. Just because you've experienced pain in life doesn't mean you have to live with it like and live there and live in that pain. You don't have to live there. Obviously, you've experienced pain. We all have. Every, every, every one of us is in, the, whether, you, whether you're driving to work now, you've experienced pain. Whether We've all experienced psychological pain, uh, abusive pain, like in physical abuse. We've all experienced some form of that in, in our lives invariably. But if you choose to live there, if you choose to let that live rent-free in your mind and don't do what you've done with it, then then now now you're choosing to disempower your your own self and 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 you cannot move through it whilst you're disempowered I, essentially that's what you're saying right 100 the, the two, i mean the two toughest things of the two hardest periods of my life that i've endured is one the sexual abuse and two going to prison and each of each of them gone on to be the most influential parts of my entire life and have enabled me to achieve or overachieve everything you know, I've I've excelled beyond 
any expectation that I had for myself or anyone else had for myself. And every every everything that I've achieved has come off the back of either what I went through as a child or how I excelled when I come out of prison. But all that hardship, all that has done is motivate me to excel beyond what I would have done without that happening. Yeah, 100%. And it can be so powerful if you can find a way to, you know, embrace the fact that, right, I've hit absolute rock bottom here. But the only there is only one place you go from rock bottom that's up. You can either stay stagnant at rock bottom or you can go up and up and up and you can just use that to motivate. And that's exactly what I've done. And that, that, as, as I say, that's enabled me to, to do so much with my life and achieve so much. And it, as as bizarre as it might sound, I'm grateful for the fact that each of those chapters of my life happened because I, I, there's, n- there's not a chance in a million years I would have gone on to have lived the life that I have, which has been such an adventure if I haven't have if I hadn't have gone through those experiences. Well, we couldn't have a conversation that perhaps helps one person overcome their abuse right now. We couldn't have that conversation unless, unless it had happened and you couldn't have had any of your success in your life unless it happened as well. And like, as soon as you've become peaceful with that knowledge, which you have, and clearly, clearly that's taken a lot of time to come to, but you've, you've used it as fuel. As soon as you've done that, you can see from your journey, I mean, how much your life changes, how much you empower. You couldn't even be in this room right now unless you'd experienced what you'd experienced. But so many people, Nick, right, they, they resent their past, whereas they couldn't have any of the positive stuff that they could create in their future without their past. And that's why it's such a powerful thing to use to fuel you, to use, to benefit you, to use, to move you forward, than to use it as a disempowering thing to keep living in that to keep living these moments over and over again and just using it as a, as a, as a negative context. It, it just seems so, so wild. Yeah. And it, I mean, as I say, I, I'm grateful for it all. And you know, it, it may, when you come out of, you know, any, any aspect of hardship or trauma or any, you know, any kind type of pain in your life, chances are it's not going to be the last one at all and it would be naive to think oh okay i'm over this now that's me done for the rest of my life it's all up from here but you know you you just have to empower yourself with each wave with each with each knockdown you just and again it sounds cliche you just come back stronger but that's entirely on you nobody else can do that for you you know i i I, i've been through therapy you know i've seen psychiatrists i've seen psychologists you know i've been medicated i've been unmedicated i've done it all but nobody's more powerful than yourself nobody nobody can action that more than you can and it's all good and well someone's you know telling you a thousand things or probing you with questions but nobody has a larger influence on your life and what direction you're going to take than you and if your mindset is what's most powerful so what so what advice would you give people listening to this right now on how to overcome the deepest darkest shadows in their life and and what steps you'd take to overcome them focus focus is all all that got me and it it's i think association is what really helped me and it was my network 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 has been the, the the key factor i think of coming out of those painful experiences and then going on to excel, it's been the catalyst for that switch over has been the network that I've had around me. And I think that's really, really important is who you keep around you. So what you've done there and what you've said is you've changed your environment completely. So, you know, if, if, if you're not happy with where you're at and you're listening to this or, you know, Nick's just laid it out for you like the simple the simplest way to change where you're at is to change your environment you're in change the country if you're not happy in the country change the the job if you're not happy in the job change the do a different business if you don't like your business you know if you don't like your health go to the gym get just just these I see a lot of people um 
buying courses and buying what I, what a term is like activity things like they'll buy something that makes them seem like they're doing an activity whereas it's just like mental masturbation essentially they'll buy something that, that they they think is taking them towards um the the goal that they have but really it's just it's just it's just like pointless you know i, I just think that if you're if you're gonna if you want something better for yourself take the actual action the the real action go for that run you know get yourself in the gym change the job not talk about changing the job or or buy a course on something else to make it seem like you're going towards the business does that make sense like it, yeah. there's so many people out there doing these kind of these kind of things that kind of don't really move the needle for them yeah and i, I think i think i think social media has a lot to answer for in that respect and the amount of you know ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes there are now with things like that and people want to they want to present the image that they are taking action without taking action because it you know you, you it's easier to just share a story to say i've signed up to this course i'm doing this i'm doing that like people are happy to do that to portray this image of i'm taking action rather than just going i'm just going to leave my phone alone i'm just going to go out and do it you know there's far there's far too many talkers you know in in modern era than there are actual walkers people just want to look look you know i mean we we, we put on this this facade, we live with this veneer of, of image of pretending to do things that we don't actually do or, or, or doing what we think, what we think other people think we should be doing, you know, and everything's just this, this fake plastic facade and behind it is, is usually so much different to what we portray. And I think that's, that's the, re, you know, the real dangers of social media is it, it, it creates, it breeds inaction and false action. And, and that that's a really dangerous concept because people get so lost in their own inaction that they start to believe this 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 fiction that they create this fictional personality and, and they 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 then become desensitized to what is action and what isn't yeah and that's that's what I'm literally getting at is like you know you've gotta really ultimately know what is action towards your goal and towards a better life for yourself on all levels a better business a better health and what's just mental masturbation and what's like literally just like societal things and I think the only way you do that is by by having by being radically honest with yourself and critical thinking like you know you've got you've got a brain but you get so disconnected from actually fucking using your own mind you know because you're used to the world now telling you what you what you what you think what you believe i mean how many people have even questioned some of the things that their parents taught them you know no offense to your mom did the best that she could but she was 15 years old when she had you so there's a good chance then that a 15 year old woman when she's a mother probably didn't teach you the the, the things that would would empower you to be you know a, a good 30 Thirty-year-old man, do you know what I'm saying? Because she wouldn't know, would she? she? How would she? How would she be able to teach her child something that she's not yet? There's like. something that she's never she's never been there. How can she teach you that? So it's it, it's 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 like question every narrative that you've got, and I think that's what that's when you start to free yourself from this from this um, victimhood, from this from everything happens to me, not for me. Yeah, because that's that that's 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 essentially the way that I changed my life in similar to, similar respect to you is that is I just flipped a script on. This isn't happening to you, Frankie boy. This is this is not. No one, no one's out here trying to fucking st steal your lunch here. You've got, you've got, you've got to step up to the plate and and take responsibility for everything—the good, the bad, the darkness, all of that shit. As soon as you do that, you, you, empowered. If something happens to you, it's your fucking fault. 
Yeah. Simple as that. It, and when you take that mentality to everything, I think it I think it actually truly opens up your mind to all the possibilities that you're talking about. Completely. Ownership goes a long way. Yeah. So f- you you obviously became successful at free running and 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 went through that whole journey. Uh, was was this was this when obviously when you got injured? So this is where things took a turn for the worst. Yeah. So I got injured and, and that took me away from the social side of things and the community aspect of things because I, I was going out to sessions and we trained for seven, eight, nine hours a day out climbing, physical conditioning, running, like we, we, literally seven, eight, nine hours a day. And I'd be going out and I couldn't take part because I was injured. So that would frustrate me. So then I stopped going out and I was just doing the managerial side of things. And then I decided, right, okay, I'm going to join the local gym. Never lifted weights in my life, but you know, I was in, I was in quite good shape and I had quite good genetics you know, just, just just off the bat, as a kid, I was quite stocky anyway. I was quite muscular. So I thought, I'll just join the gym. I'll keep in shape. I'll condition. And I joined the local gym while still managing the team. And I was, you know, I was becoming a disinterested. I joined the local gym. And within within a few months, I'd started to really, really pack size on. And a couple of guys in the gym, a couple of the older guys who, who were like from the old school 70s bodybuilding era were like, you've got really good genetics. You, you should compete fuck you talking about competing what oh you should compete in bodybuilding it's like what's that I'm, the, only thing, the only thing I know about bodybuilding is Donald Schwarzenegger you know what I mean which I've seen him in the movies that's, that's all I know about it. you're like no you've got you've got tons of potential so I fall under the wing of these guys and I'd, I'd have been 20 at the time and that very quickly escalated to right well you have to take X Y and Z you have to take steroids if you want any chance of getting anywhere in, in, in this industry which is as true today as it was then. So I start taking steroids and I, I blow up really quickly and I've gone from maybe 14 stone, probably even less, maybe 13 stone as, as, a, as a parkour free running athlete to 18 and a half stone. I absolutely ballooned. Um, and then I competed in the in the the Open British Championship as a junior and I won the title. So at this point I was I was 20 years old, junior Mr. Britain, and that that went to my head a little bit. And then I, I was in this, I was in the very early fitness scene. So this was 2012 when I won the title. And this, this is when the, this is just leading into the Instagram era of it. I you know everything's about image. And I've come from this, this community, community based art or sport, whatever you'd want to call it into this fitness industry where everything is image. And I'm going to lift more than you. I'm going to be bigger than you. You've, you've you've gone from family to ego based completely, completely, and that's how you switched over. And it and it consumed me so much, and obviously I've subjected myself to the to the amount of drugs that you need to take to be a competitive bodybuilder. So I, I've got this influx of hormones that I've never experienced before. I'm around all these people where images everything, everything is posing, image and looking good and being better than this person and beating that person and lifting more than this guy and you know that mentality really you know because I, I was still impressionable because I was young. And because I just won this title, I'd started to, you know, I was getting really confident. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy, the man, yeah. I'm the guy. And this, this is obviously today. It's a lot different because you go any, any street in Merseyside, and probably only one street. You probably got three, four, five, six people who think they're fitness influencers. It's the norm now. Back then, it wasn't. So I, I was, I was the guy. I was 20 years old. There was barely anybody in the area that did it. I was absolutely huge. I won this. I'd won the British title. I was in a couple of magazines. Featured my win. I get a sponsorship with Optimum Nutrition at the time. So my, my ego is just blown to the sky. You know, I, I think I'm think and I'm think I'm great. I think I'm fantastic. And then that very quickly went from 
me taking steroids to me then selling steroids. Yeah, the lo- the logical step. In the that, next yeah. step forward, yeah. And I was in a I was in a car crash on the motorway um, at the time. I was working for. I'd just taken a job with Vauxhalls, you know, building cars on the assembly line. Whilst I was injured, because I thought I'll do this while I'm doing that, and I just joined the gym. I was just in Vauxhalls, and I'd only been there a few months, and I got into a crash on the motorway. Got a claim, five thousand pounds or something. I thought, what, what am I going to do with this? I know. And this is just that I'd started selling a couple of bits of gear. I know I'll, I'll, I'll buy a load of wholesale steroids. So I spent like £5,000 on steroids, got these two big duffel bags of steroids dropped off at the house. So you spent £5,000 on steroids? Yeah, and I'm talking two big giant holdalls worth of steroids, just just right, I'm all in, I'm all in. And because I had this pre-existing network globally from the free running days, because I was traveling everywhere, all across America, all across Europe, so I had friends all over the world. So then the natural step from selling steroids locally was... Well, I wonder if I can sell these to my friends abroad. So I'm contacting friends abroad, and all of a sudden I'm posting steroids all across Europe, posting steroids to America. And that excelled really, really quickly, and I'm making a lot of money now to the point where I don't even need to be at Vauxhalls anymore. I don't, so when you say a lot of money, what's a lot of money? I mean, not to the standards that went on, but, I, you know, you, you're talking around three, four, five grand a week, which was which was huge. D- huge money for you, yeah? Yeah, yeah, it would be huge money. And so I'm like, do, do I really need this £600 a week job at Vauxhalls? Do I really need the commission I'm making off this jobs with the, the free-running guys? Like, And I didn't even care at that point because my ego, you know, I'm so engrossed in this, this, this world of vanity and, you know, I lose yourself so easily once you're around. And again, association breeds similarity. I'm around all these people who are so focused on image and ego that I get so consumed by it. And then, you know, my, my personality disappeared so fast. And the law, the law of association that you're talking about is so, so pivotal that I want people to get through in this podcast. Like there's, um, I've, I've even seen it. I've seen it happen in groups of girls where, there'll be there'll be there'll be two two of the girls will do one of the girls will do only fans and then two of the two of the group of four will do it and then the logic dictates you can predict what happens next can't you yeah like you know and then the girl three and four didn't even want to do only fans but now they're doing it as well because of the law of association so it's such a powerful thing that if you want more for yourself and in your life that you can either compound that that can compound both ways, positive and negative. And anybody that wants more in their business and their life can just get, can just literally on a piece of paper, write down the kind of entrepreneurs that they want to be around, the kind of people that they want to be around. And they can pre-plan and preordain their trajectory by putting themselves in the right environment. And you can plan that. That's you, obviously you, you, you're teaching us this through, through a bad thing that happened to you but it's like pretty plainly obvious when you when you connect the dots going backwards in it completely yeah and I, I, I can't remember the exact same but it's something similar to you know you, you are the you know you are that you are the sum of the five people that you associate with you know you are a little bit of all of those that you associate with and if, as you say if a b and c of your friends are doing one type of behavior the natural course you know the, the natural trajectory is that you're then going to end up doing the same thing and I, lo- I lost touch with that network that I had previously and fell into this new network. And I left Vauxhalls, made myself a nuisance in there, took redundancy at Vauxhalls, took a 25 grand payout from Vauxhalls, plus all this money I'm making off the steroids. And then because I'd, I'd moved gym to a more, uh, like a darker bodybuilding gym, like a very old school type, you know, all, all the old heads, you know, all, yeah. all, all, the, all the local boys. Would you say so? You know, I fall into this, you know, darker network. Each time, I'm kind of going down a level. 
it keeps going down and down and down and down and it's darker and darker and darker and I keep following this path and I you know I get into this gym and I'm I'm making these connections and it's you know it, it's still steroids at this point and some pharmaceutical drugs and stuff like that and then that kind of jumped from where that was and around this this whole period of time I then took a job working on the doors in Liverpool city center just just because just because I was the big guy and that seemed like the thing to do I didn't meet, didn't need the money or I wanted that bravado. I wanted that image. You wanted you want that your ego wanted to be that face. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, I know, and I, and I was a big guy for my age. You know, I was twenty years old, nineteen stone, skinhead, looked mean as fuck. I mean, I, you know, I, I'd be lying if I said I could fight. If I, if I, I was nineteen stone, great, yeah. But if I'd have come up against an eighty kilo boxer, if I didn't hit him with the first punch, he'd have put me on my ass. He'd put me to sleep. Do you know what I mean? But it was all about image, and for the most part, that's all that matters. Because people assume you look the way that you do and you act a particular way. They assume you know how to handle yourself. And that's normally enough. Because nine out of ten people don't want to fight. It's just natural. You don't want to have to do that. You know what I mean? Even in... Well, a lot of people aren't about it, let's be honest. They're not, no. And, 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 and you know, that's standard across most species. You know, you, there'll be some demonstration. There'll be some, you know, some bravado, some chest puffing. And, and somebody will naturally back down because... There's barely any species in the world that wants to fight. It's just a dance, isn't it? It's a domination thing. Like, I, I'm weighing you up, you're weighing me up. Someone's going to back down, most likely. And that's all it took. And that, that excelled very quickly. And the image started to grow. And, you know, I'm this this young kid who's making lots of money, this big guy. And I got into these darker circles. And I'm on the doors then. So then I make this, this... I've gone down a level again now. So I've gone from, you know, doing the steroids and then going into this darker gym. And now I'm on the doors and I'm making these bigger connections and bigger connections and... It was then that I switched, made the switch from pharmaceuticals and steroids into harder drugs. So it went from importing and exporting steroids and growth hormones, sleeping tablets, painkillers to methadone, cocaine, ecstasy, you know, cannabis, and that that went. And, what, and, and, and you know, and you know, looking back, that whatever darkness you put out into the world comes back to you in darkness as a return because energy is energy, right? Completely, yeah. And as I say, it just, it, it excelled so fast. And all of this is happening over the space of 12 months. I've gone from this community-based kid hanging around with religious guys. We're doing litter picks off our own back in the community, going painting graffiti off walls, you know, doing the opposite of what you'd expect 18, 19-year-old kids to do, you know, putting all this positive energy into the world, being in newspapers, being on TV to, right, I'm mixing with real gangsters now and I'm fighting all the time and I'm loving this image and, you know, so this this with the gang associations come in and really, really wanting to be a part of it. It wasn't just that I fell into it, I was I was looking for it and I'm listening to loads of grime music, loads of rap music, lo- watching loads of gangster films, Godfather, Sopranos, you know, I'm really, really, really loving it and, it, you know, you look back and you cringe on it but at the time it was, you know, you get obsessive with it and because I had so many contacts internationally that I'd, I'd been developing from the free running days and then to the steroids and then to this like I had the ability to buy moderate quantities of drugs abroad and bring them in but also the ability to export to places where it was difficult to get to so your Jersey your Alaman your Australia your islands your Ibiza like the, the places where because everybody in Liverpool, like the, there was, there was money to be made in Liverpool in the nineties because the what the, it wasn't as, as saturated with drugs. Whereas now, unless you're doing, unless you're at the top of the game, there's not a lot of money to be made because everybody's kind of. I mean, the same with any e-commerce or any retail shops that you see on the street. The, the margins are smaller and smaller because there's so much competition, and everybody's fighting locally to make this kind of money. Even if you're buying wholesale, everyone's mixing stuff down and diluting it. But because I had 
contacts in these islands where it was, you know, the commodity was worth so much more. You could buy something in Liverpool, like like if you were to buy a, a, sing, a single kilo of cannabis in in Liverpool for I don't know four and a half five thousand pounds, you could sell it for six thousand. Well, you could sell that in wholesale to an island for ten, eleven, twelve thousand pounds, the exact same thing. So I start exporting drugs to islands and making a lot of money. Like you could sell the poorest quality stuff that you couldn't sell in Liverpool, be it cocaine, you know, what whatever methadone cannabis. You couldn't even sell it in Liverpool, it's that bad. But on these islands, it's the best thing that they've ever had. Because they're used to it, especially with like the cannabis, with like the, the old school way of transporting drugs in cars and packing cars out with like uh, cannabis resin, which is like hard blocks of cannabis, really poor quality stuff. But that maximizes how many kilos you can get per car. And that was the way that people were doing it. And we started using Royal Mail. And what I was doing, going through the depths of the internet, looking at the best ways to evade, you know, the methods that have been put in place by customs. So we were triple sealing everything in polythene to avoid the detection of the dogs. And we were putting putting the drugs in like cash tins, you know, like the red and blue cash tins that you get. And we, we were labeling them up as, I was printing invoices off for real companies. So I'd say I'd look for, I'd look for a tool shop in Wales and I'd get their exact logo of the company and I'd print an invoice off with the, that matched the exact weight of whatever we were saying, the exact value. So everything looked like it ticked the box and I'd specifically get someone to then go and post that from a post office in Wales near them stores so that when it got to customs in whichever island it was going to, everything checked out, the weight checked out, the price checked out. It come from the right origin. So everything come through and we, everything went through with no issue. So the, all these old school guys who were sending cars over packed full of, you know, the, the, this, 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 these crap drugs, you know, and they're, they're hit and miss. We're sending them top quality stuff. Royal Mail's doing all the work for us. And we're selling four kilo, 4,000 pound kilos of cannabis for 10,000 wholesale and doing three, four, five a week. And I'm making like 20 grand a week at this point. And it's absolutely nuts. Like I'm, making, I'm doing three text messages a week, making 20 grand and doing absolutely nothing. Bearing in mind, my mum's salary at the time would have been like, I don't know, £12,000 a year. And I'm sat in my bed making two, three messages and making 20 grand in a week. And it, it, it's all that did then was fuel what was already an out-of-control ego. And then everybody wants to be around you because you've got the money and you've got the fancy cars. And I had a 15-bedroom apartment in Liverpool city centre. 15-bedroom? Yeah. It, how I ended up with that is is is, is a... I didn't, I didn't even know they had a 15 bedroom apartment. They, they don't. So it belonged to a guy who was converting what was an existing commercial property into student accommodation. And this was in the interim of having it done out and it had just been finished. And he wanted me in there because I was making a name for myself at the time. He's like, well, you move in there, Nick, and you look after it kind of thing. Trying to, he wanted me as part of his, you know, he's my guy. So he said, you know, will you move in there? And I was still working on the doors at the time. This was right in the city centre. I had three floors five bedrooms on every floor. Each floor had, had its own living room. I had the whole place to myself. And I'm finishing on the doors at six o'clock in the morning and I like to, you know, I'd like to come on. I'd be like, come on, everyone back to ours. And I'm just, you know, throwing a thousand pills on, on the tables, right? Everyone knocked themselves. And I got in with this, you know, all, all the all these like such a bizarre mix you, of people. You love to create bad energy around you. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't doing myself any favours, you know. I, I, I basically doused myself in petrol and I'm sitting there playing with a lighter essentially. Do you know what I mean? It, 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 but because I was getting so much, you know, uh, so much affirmation from these people, so much you know, fake attention and fake love and fake admiration, it was just fueling me into thinking this is, this is, yeah. this is the one I'm onto something. And, and uh, essentially I still, I still think at that point the ego is there to protect you from 
the abuse that you probably haven't overcome at that point in your time. And then you're trying to act in a way that is as you've, you've created a character to get over how you probably felt and how you, and you know, to get over the abuse essentially. So you've, you've built this fictional character on the top of all this sand, basically like a ha- building a house on sand that can just be blown down at any minute. And you don't even really tr- know then at that point who the fuck you are, do you? No. And it, again, it takes you back to creating that facade that we all live with this veneer of this, you know, this layer of protection in front of you to stop you addressing what you actually are and what your actual issues are. And as you say, you've just, you, you create this fiction and you, you very quickly lose sight of the difference between the fiction and who you really are. So how did it all fall down? It fell down. I, I think the catalyst for the, for the fall down was that I'd... Thank fuck it did. Yeah, thank fuck. It was the best thing that ever happened to me, which, which you know, there's a happy ending to this one at least. But the, the, the catalyst was when I got involved with firearms and I, I, bought my, I bought my first firearm in 2013, I think it was. What, 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 what drives you to want to buy a firearm? feeling like that was the next progressive step like a power thing you know there, there was no in that initial purchase there was no intent on using it like it wasn't buying it for any specific reason I didn't, didn't particularly need it for anything do you know what I mean there was no there was no at you the time when wanted, I bought it there yeah. was no beef there was nothing going on it was just you wanted it because you because you, like because you be knew powerful. you had the con the contacts to get one yeah just I've got one do you know what I mean it, it's especially in Liverpool they're a lot easier to get now Whereas at the time, there wasn't that many about. And if you could get one, getting one was one thing, getting ammunition for it was a whole different thing. Whereas now, they're everywhere. Because the world's so closely connected now, they're so easy to get. And that's why Liverpool's in, in such a, you know, the state that it is now. But I do this in 2013 or 14. And, you know, one, one of my then best friends who was aware of the fact that I had it, I'd fallen out with him over over a girl that I was dating at the time. I was in quite a serious relationship and, you know, I, f- I forget exactly what it was that had been said, but he'd slagged me off to some degree to her. And obviously with, with, with me being so consumed with ego at the time, that just wasn't acceptable. That wasn't going to happen. So I'm on the phone screaming at him. I'm like, you know, get the fuck out of your house. I'm, like, I'm going to fucking shoot you. So I've, take, I've taken this thing to his house and I'm sat outside his house now telling him exactly what I'm going to do. And I, I, I don't, for the life of me, I can't remember exactly what I intended on doing, but I was there and I had it with me. And that's what I was saying. If you'd have come out the house, I don't know what would have happened next, but he, he, Obviously, obviously you're pumped full of steroids yeah 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 I'm full, I'm full of steroids and I'm full of a particular steroid called Trembolone and Trembolone is a really really dangerous drug because it the way that it alters your brain chemistry really fucks you up and this is well Trembolone from what from the research that I know from talking to a bodybuilder the other day literally talking to me about Trembolone he said when he took Trembolone because obviously he does a lot of gear because he's a bodybuilder he said he had to stop taking it because it gives you these um, lucid nightmares yeah. that that you think are so fucking real. Like you think you've, w- even when you are still asleep, you sit up in your bed like you've woken up and you feel like you're awake, but you, but all this dark stuff's happening. And he was telling me some of these stories. It's, it's a mental, mental thing to play with. Yeah, and that's no exaggeration. It is a horrible drug and it affects you in ways, you know, it, it makes you paranoid. You struggle with sleep and, the impact that it has on the brain is it, it inhibits your ability to produce dopamine and serotonin as you would normally. So it's very difficult for you to be happy in, so, in any respect. So essentially you just want to be angry all, all the, the time. time. Yeah. And, you, and you feel superhuman. And compared to testosterone, I think gram for gram, Trembolone is like seven times more anabolic and more androgenic than, than testosterone. I might be slightly off with that, but it, it, it is everything that makes you masculine, you know, them, them deep, 
you know the, the 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 everything that we've carried from an evolutionary perspective of wanting to hunt and attack and fight like you're feeding it a hundred times you know more than you've than you've ever had it and you are you can't get happy you're angry you're paranoid you know you can't you can't experience any degree of happiness to the point where you can't even climax having sex for the most part because you, your brain just won't, won't won't give you that switch that release of positive chemicals there's just a block so you're angry all the time. So I'm filled with this stuff because there was there was no literature available at the time for steroids. It was just right. Big Dave at the gym said you take ten of these, five of them, six of these, and this this is what you look like at the end. Whereas now the, the, there's people are coming forward now for, in an educational capacity and, and really you know speaking about it and saying, look, this is what I take. This is what you what you shouldn't really really shouldn't take. And if you are going to take it, this is a safe way to do it without without being without encouraging the use of it it's like look this is what i do and this is how i do it to the safest way that i possibly can if you're going to do it that's the, and, and that that for me is a better angle than oh i don't take it because 95 yeah. of the fitness industry do and 90 percent of them deny that they do and that is just as dangerous in my opinion as, as, as somebody you know. well most of the top women that girls look up to on online they're all on clem roll yeah completely like Glenbuterol, T3, Subutramine, you name it. And I, and I have mixed with most of these guys and I, and I eventually, just leading up to this, and I, I, I missed this bit, I lost my sponsorship with Optimum Nutrition because at the time I was open about the fact I was using steroids because I was, I was junior British bodybuilding champion. You can't. And, and, and I suppose it, that, that was, again, to do with your ego. Oh, I'm just going to tell everyone I'll do this, yeah, this, and this, and this. I'm, yeah, because why not? Because I'm Nick. Yeah, I'm Nick Kappa. Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah. This, I'm this man and... You know, like I say, this is all. This is all really when you break it down. Mask. This is all masking Completely. trauma. And and you know, I was public about this, and I get a message from Optimum Nutrition to go and meet them in their head office in London. We want to have a chat with you. They, would, they wouldn't mention what it was about. Okay, sure, no problem. So it goes down to Optimum's head, head office in London, and at the time they were the, the biggest supplement company in the world. Like they're they're, they're kind of mid tier now, but they were the biggest at the time. There was nobody bigger than them, and I I, was, I had this this endorsements from them. And I go to meet them in their head office, and I meet with one of their one of their main directors, and we're sat in this boardroom, just me and her. You know, I was expecting a bit of a bigger beating, and it was very very hush hush. She's like, Nick, I've got a question question to ask, and you know, I'm just going to come out with it. And she said, uh, you know, we believe taking steroids you know is, is there any truth in that and I, and I looked down and I thought it's a trick question I was like do you want me to answer this honestly or is there a particular way that you want me to answer this and she's like oh no no, no. you know answer answer honestly I was like well of course I'm taking steroids I'm, I'm the British bodybuilding champion junior champion or you think I'm not and she, she looked at me like not in disgust she looked at me in complete shock as, as if to say wow we he actually is like this. This is a real, and I thought, how naive can because you? Because I suppose a lot of their athletes weren't telling them the truth. Exactly, and I'm thinking, I've just done one of the first body power events, which for those who don't know is, is one of the biggest fitness events in the country that we have. It's the, it's the event that birthed Jim Shark. It's exactly, event, yeah. yeah. It, it is absolutely huge. So I just I just done the 2012 body power with Optimum Nutrition, and I was there with most of their team. You know, all their athletes. It was probably 20 of us. And having gone to dinner with them and had a good chat with the lads and everything else, nine out of ten of them are taking gear and we had a conversation about it. And I'm sat, I'm sat in the room and she's like absolutely shocked. And I'm like, thinking I don't want to throw anyone on the bus under the bus here, so I'm not going to name anybody. And I'm like, you do realise that pretty much every athlete that you sponsor is on steroids, don't you? And she was, no, 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 they're not, they're not. And, I, and obviously, I, I didn't, I didn't keep pushing on that because I thought I'm not throwing the lads under the bus. But I thought, are you really that naive? 
you're one of the directors of one of the biggest supplement companies in the world and you're naive to the fact that you've got 20 athletes on board and 18 of them are taking steroids. You think they look supernatural. Yeah. But they're natural. Like you can't possibly be that naive. And she really was. And she was a nice woman, don't get me wrong, but she was so blissfully unaware of, of how tainted the industry is with that because if you're honest about it, you lose your sponsorship. Whereas if you're dishonest, they're happy to endorse you, but they're happy for you to mislead the public. They want the public to believe that you look the way you do because you're taking their protein powder, you're taking their creatine. And that that's just that's just false advertising and that's really dangerous because then all that does then is that breeds the insecurities in people of thinking, well, hang on a minute, I bought this, this, you know, let's not name anybody, but let's let's take a big fitness implementer. I bought his coaching package. I'm using I'm using this brand's products and I'm working my hardest and these and, and people do work their absolute hardest and I hardly look any different to how I looked six months ago. There's something wrong with me. Yeah, is it is it me? Like uh, he's saying, I should just do this, and he's an honest person because he's endorsed by this big brand. Like why do, why don't I look the way that he yeah, does? It's all built in the cycle, exactly. Yeah, and you just you just create this vicious cycle of 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 giving people these insecurities and people thinking that they're not good enough. Because you had the genetic element into it as well. It took me twelve months to excel beyond what most people get to in twelve years, even with taking steroids, just because I had genetics behind me. Yeah. And I'm honest about that. And I'm honest about the fact that I was taking steroids at the time. But the vast majority of these fitness influencers who are endorsed by big brands who are selling these coaching packages will tell you, no, no, it's just because I work hard. I get up at six AM every morning. I eat my oats, I take my protein shakes, and this is why I looked at it. It's like kind of a minute. No, dude. I've looked on your Facebook from fifteen years ago when you were sixteen, you had massive biceps. So stop trying to sell this bicep program that you think you're you know, people think that you're unique and that's why you look the way that you do. It's all fake. It's it's all about genetic potential in, in all sports. Like if you're six foot seven, there's a good chance if you're lean and six foot seven, you, you're you're more suited to basketball. Hundred percent. But if but if you're maybe six two and you're built and you're stocky and you've got good muscle and you've got that triangle of fame, there's a good chance you're going to be good at rugby. You know what I'm saying? Like that, you don't really as a as a as a as a let's just look in terms of men you don't pick your sport the sport picks you by your frame by how you're built you know what i'm saying I, you know when when i go when i was going down the boxing gym with the boys that's just because i was a i was a i was a you know a lad that was 511 and i wasn't built like a fucking bodybuilder so i couldn't go down the bodybuilding gym and do bodybuilding because that wouldn't suit me so i'll go spar with these lads then because you know, I've got to be able to look after myself because I've got to be able to deal with people like you. So it, it's just, it just, you don't pick it, it picks you. You don't. And in every other sport, people are happy to accept that. I haven't, I haven't got the ability to move like a footballer. I'm not agile enough. Okay, I'm not meant to be a footballer. But, right. but in fitness, it's kind of like a, it's like anyone a, can be the it's, best. It's, it's, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great area. But when you were sat outside your mate's house, because I want to touch on that, when you sat outside your mate's house with that shooter on you, you, what happened? So he, he obviously didn't come outside because you know, what, what idiot would? Because he was well aware of the fact that I had it. He didn't come outside and I, and I went back home, put the thing away where it was, which wasn't a home, went back home. A couple hours later, the police turn up. We've had a call from you know Mr. So-and-so. I won't name him because he's, he's, we're friends again, ironically, later on in life. Um, he said that he's aware of that you've got it and that you've threatened to shoot him, blah, blah, blah. Is there any truth to that? And I said, talking shit. I said, I'll ring him right now in front of you. He'll tell you exactly. he tell you that's a lie. I phoned him on loudspeaker in front of the police. I was like, these are saying you've just said this. What do oh, no, no, no. I, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. Put it down. And they said, can we have a little look around, Nick? And they knew me from back in the days, these two officers that come, because they knew me from the free running days. Because obviously we'd had a lot of interactions with the police, negative initially, and then really positive later on through my career. 
you just have a little look around there. Can you see? So I've got nothing to hide. Have a look around. I've had a look around the apartments. All right, Nick, we'll leave it to you. Good night, no problem. Next day, I go to I go to leave from the apartment where I was towards where the gym is that I now own the, uh, in the town that I grew up in. And I'm driving down the main road and I can hear sirens from maybe a, a mile away, whatever the distance is, you could hear sirens in the background. And I seen this car pull behind me. It was a police car, no lights, but I could hear sirens coming from further away. And every time I'd switch lanes, they'd switch behind me. There was no, you know, there was there was no lights or anything. I thought these, these these are coming for me. And I had my my girlfriend in the car at the time. We had some we had some bits and bobs in the middle, some scales and some other bits. God knows what reason. I said they're going to pull me. She said, what do you mean? I said no. Trust me, they're going to pull me. Said, do me a favor, put them away. She puts them in her leggings, and I pulled into this this house in a state where it's like a dead end. So there's no reason they'd be following me to go to anywhere. So if I knew they'd come behind me. They were coming for me. I turn into this house in a state, police come behind me, lights on, all of a sudden there's another four cars surround the car. Jump straight to the car to come to the front, they're like hands on the wheel, don't touch anything. Got my hands on the wheel. Got my phone in my pocket still. They dragged me out the car, put me in the car, put me in the back of the police car, chuck my phone on the front seat, which is really bizarre because there was no cage in the in the front seat. So, there, so I'm in the back of the car with these cuffs on and there's a, my mobile's on the front and they're searching around the car and whatever else so I was able to reach over and grab my phone wipe my phone take anything off it and they, obviously when they got back in the car they could see I'd wiped the phone they were like you just wiped it I haven't done anything I don't know what you're talking about but they found the scales in the middle of the car and that then gave them grounds to go and search the apartments obviously wanting to look for the gun but they didn't have the evidence at the time to look for it but that was enough for them to get in the apartments so they, they arrested me they then went and got the warrant searched the apartments ripped the police to pieces took my Range Rover to bits because Obviously, being the, the egotistical maniac I was at the time, first thing I did was buy a Range Rover. Um, stripped it to bits, dusted it down for, I don't know what exactly you were looking for, fingerprints or what, but it looked like fingerprint dust all over it. It was missing parts when I got it back. They, I don't know if they were trying to see who I was associated with or they were just stripping it down to look for that. Took my oven to pieces because I had the sponsorship with Optimum Nutrition at, at the time. Well, just, just as I lost that sponsorship for being open about, about the steroid use, I had maybe 42 kilo tubs of whey protein in one of the bedrooms that I had in my apartment untouched because as much as I was sponsored by them at the time, I wasn't using protein powder. I was just stockpiling all this stuff that they were sending me. They they unscrewed every single container, chucked it everywhere. There was solvents everywhere, took my oven to pieces, ripped the apartment to bits. And they only found a small amount of drugs. I think it was a couple of kilo of methadrone and I don't know, maybe a few grand in cash. I didn't, I didn't keep anything there. and I wasn't even aware that I had the the drugs there, I didn't even know they were there, them back in my wardrobe with some cash that I'd put there months before and completely forgot about. So they've got that and I got arrested on that and then bailed. So there was no charges at this point and they bailed me and this was just a minor charge and from from there, I was like, well, I've got nothing to lose here. I'm just going to go balls to wall. So I started to export more, import more all whilst I'm on bail and it was around this time that, probably about six months later, that something that I had going on in Jersey, that I won't go into too much detail on, something that I had going on in Jersey had come to a stop. And I still had stuff going on in Liverpool City Centre, and there was I had guys working for me in particular clubs. They were, that was like our area. And there was a guy that had come in a few years older than me who tried to kind of impose himself on a situation. It was all the bravado. It was basically just another me, just another another idiot like I was, you know, trying to make a name for himself. This is, you know, 
I'm going to move in here. He wants to work for me. I'll do you better deals. And I found out about it and I was like, fuck this guy. I'm not, I'm not having this. And instead of, instead of just going straight about it in the violent capacity, I thought I'll go, out, I'll go about this tactically because I was on bail at this point and I knew, you know, I had eyes on me. So I got one of my one of my pals that I'd known for many years and he looks he looks really timid, long hair, hippie looking kind of guy. I got this kid's number and I said, look, I want you to text him and I want you to ask him for a small amount of drugs. Ask, ask him for a few grams of whatever. I said, I want you to go and meet him and I want you to look as, as harmless as you possibly can. If he goes and meets him, buys this this half ounce or whatever he buys of him, buys off him. I said, right, I want you to wait a couple of days. I want you to message him again and I want you to get double. Goes to gets the double. I said, no, I want you to give it a week. And I want you to message him and I want you to say that you, I want you to tell him that you're in university in Liverpool and that you and your roommate have just got your, your uni loan. Are you looking to make some money in the uni scene and you want to buy a couple of kilos off him? And this, I mean, this is only methadone, so you're, you're probably only talking 12, 15 grand worth of stuff. But I said, look, tell him this is what you want to do. Make him, make him think that he's got the power and you're really naive to the prices. Make him think he's onto the deal of a lifetime. So it goes on and they go back and forth. He played the part brilliantly and they agreed to meet. I think they're going to buy three kilos off him for like £12,000. I said, right, so I want you to drive. I said, I'm going to bring one of the lads down from Newcastle, this, this Albanian guy, Chico, that we were doing work with at the time. He's an absolute fucking lunatic. He'd do anything if you pay him to do. You want to go and chop someone to bits or bury somebody. You, you pay him and he'd do it. Do you know what I mean? He's tapped in the head. I said, I'm going to bring Chico down to, you know, to, to sort him out, to give him a lesson. So my pal goes to meet him and the, the, he jumps in the back of the car. Sorry, no, he jumped in the, from what I recall, because I wasn't even there for this. They'd taken the, the head the headrest off the passenger seat. Obviously, he jumped in the passenger seat and Chico sat behind him and my guy's driving in the front. And they took him down some side lane because he, he thinks he's meeting some university kids. He thinks he's onto an easy win, do you know what I mean? going to make some easy money. Took him down some side lane battered him, took his clothes off him, his phone off him, the drugs off him, took his shoes off him and just left him on the side of the street. And I texted him the day later, I was like, you've had your lesson. You either work for us or you don't work in that area at all. You know, simple as that. And from there, he ended up working for us and he said to me, well, I've got some friends in Jersey as well. I could go over there and I could set up shop over there and I could work for you and I could, you know, we could make a lot of money. I was like, okay, well, you go over there. I'll set you up. I'll front everything. I'll pay for your apartment, your flights. I'll give you enough money to start over there and we'll send you a starter package over there. You get yourself sorted. He flies over to Jersey and, you know, it, well, I said I don't believe in karma, but this this is definitely, uh, I asked for this one. So he's gone over there and done the exact same thing he did in Liverpool and give it all the bravado. I work for this big gangster in Liverpool, showing the pictures of me on, on Facebook, this big, big juice head with these big fancy cars. And I work for this guy. Jersey's only nine by five miles. It's tiny. So you're trying to make a name for yourself. It spreads through the island in a heartbeat. So he's put himself on the map straight away. And we'd only sent him two lots over, two, two, two small containers over with bits. And he'd got himself under observation straight away. And they were aware of the story that he was, because it's such a small network over there, like the grassing on each other, stitching each other up is a big thing because you're eliminating competition over there because it's so small. So it, it's it's a very it's a very bizarre mentality over there where they're, they're, the grafters and the dealers over there are incentivized to stitch each other up. They'll just go and tell the police that you're doing something to try and eliminate you out the picture. Whereas in Liverpool, you do that and you, you're a marked man. But it, you know the, the mentality over there is completely different. So he'd been thrown under the bus, so the police had put observation on him, and they knew that he wasn't the main man. So they were just watching to see what was going to happen. And I just, 
I just split up with my girlfriend at the time. Oh, we were on the rocks. And I, I said to my mate Carl, who I was working on the doors with, and he's a, he's a fucking lump of a lad, 20-odd stone, mixed race, six foot three, absolute unit, but he, he's, he's harmless, but he looks terrifying. So did I at the time. So should we go over to Jersey? We'll just play on the jet skis. We'll go over. We had about 20 grand to pick up. I was like, should we just go and pick the money up? We'll have a little weekend out of it because I've fallen out of it. Let's just go and have a good time. He's like, all right, sound. Unbeknown to us, when we got to the airport, we were already under surveillance. And when I later got my my, my depth pack, they had pictures of us, of us stepping off the plane. So from the, the minute we stepped down the steps off the easy jet, we were already under surveillance. And we got to the we got to a pub in the in in Saint Helier Saint Helier, I think it was for something to eat. And we, you know, we sat at this table about to order food, and this woman stands next to me, and she I thought she was a waitress, and I've, I'm looking at the menu, and I'm kind of weighing her up to think, you know, are you a customer or a waitress? Like, you're waiting to take my order. She looked at me really funny, and I thought, something's not right here. And then, boom, 20 police officers swarmed the, swarmed the pub, folded us in half, dragged us, chucked us in the back of the chucked us in the back of the van and took us to the police station. And obviously, we were like, well, we've got nothing on us. So, the, you, you know, there's, there's nothing you've got on us whatsoever. So how it turned out, the farmhouse that we paid for for this lad to stay in, he had some bits there, some ecstasy tablets and... Again, there was another couple of kilo of methadone in there. It wasn't 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 a substantial amount of drugs, but it was enough to put the frighteners on him. So they've interviewed him, and straight away, like so obviously you get a copy of the interview straight away. He said it was them. He said Nick's this, Nick's this gangster from Liverpool, and he he sent these bits over. And you know, I'll, I'll his exact words where I'll tell you whatever you want to know about him. I just want to I want to be set up in a new, new life somewhere. You know, thinking he was yeah, going to get yeah. some sort of witness protection. Do you know what I mean? Which I've never even heard of in this country. He's obviously watched too many American movies and thought, oh, if I, if I stitch this guy up, then I'm going to get this nice little house somewhere. He's obviously completely deluded. But also, this is the best thing that's ever happening to you. Completely, yeah. But this 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 wouldn't have happened if I hadn't have set my lads on him in the first place to even put him in jersey, to put him in a situation where he's like, I've got no allegiance to this guy. I'm going to throw him under the bus. And he painted this picture of me that I was so much bigger than I was at the time. And obviously, I thought I was a gangster, but I definitely wasn't a gangster. I was just playing gangster. But the picture he painted to them was, well... The lad that's with him, he's his bodyguard. So obviously yeah. to the police now, I've got this 20-odd stone guy with me. He's my bodyguard now. He's like, and you're never going to get him because he, you never get Nick because he's always traveling around the world doing dodgy deals. You never, I wasn't. When I was traveling around the world, it was just because I had loads of money and nothing else to do and I'm traveling around, but I'm going to destinations like South of Spain and Amsterdam and stuff like that. So if you look at my passport record, which they did, I'm traveling all around Europe. I've got this bodyguard with me. They've got pictures on my fancy cars. I've got firearms, suspicion of firearms on my record. They think jackpot. You know, we've got this big hitter from Liverpool. and All the pieces fitted in a superficial kind of way. Like, it, I looked the pass, but, you know, I certainly wasn't no, no big-town gangster. I was making big money, and I, as I say, I thought I was a gangster, but I, I certainly wasn't no gangster whatsoever. But they thought they'd hit the jackpot, so they kept us. They interviewed me. I give, give a, just by chance, me and Carl give a perfect, perfectly consistent story. We were there for jet ski and blah, 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 blah. So they had to keep us for, they kept us for nearly two days. They had to keep requesting extensions for how long they could keep us for because they couldn't get us to trip up in the interviews. And obviously I've, I've got a, a fair understanding of psychology. And when they're interviewing me, they're like, they'd ask me a particular question like, you know, oh, you had some Jersey notes with you. Where did it come from? You know, where did you get it changed? And I can't remember where I said, oh, I got my cousin to change it and such and such a branch and whatever story. And then they get 15 minutes in the interview and be like, so you said when your auntie changed the money for you, such and such. I was like, no, 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 no. I didn't say my auntie. I said my cousin. They kept trying to trip me up in the interview, and every time they did, I'd be like, look, I appreciate what you're trying to do here and trying to catch me out, but I'm telling you the truth. So they had nothing on us whatsoever, so they 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 got a warrant 
they had to contact Merseyside Police to then raid the address that I gave them, which was bizarre. And I was meant to be kept excommunicado, which means you can't make an outside call because you can't notify anybody who could potentially interfere with the case. But the guy who was on the desk when I first got there wasn't aware, and I managed to make one call, and that was to my to my grandmother, who's passed now. And all I said to her was, "I'm in Jersey. I've been arrested. Just letting you know, I'm okay. I'll, I'll you know, I'll let you know when I hear any more news." Didn't say anything else to her. There was nothing pre-planned or whatever. And my nan, bless her, had gone to where my money was, took my money, buried it in my auntie's garden. Um, to, uh, so I wasn't at this address, but I gave my nan's address. So the police have turned up at my nan's in the middle. Of, this is on a Saturday afternoon. And they've gone through the house. How many people's nans go and bury money in the garden? Like, it's just crazy. Isn't it? My nan was great. Yeah, I, there was no, there was, there was no, there was no, you know, pre agreed deal there for getting any trouble. Do this, like I, I'd said nothing. I just, I just, it's just like a nousy thing that like these northern nans would yeah, do, isn't it? Pro- like proper very, scouse nan, yeah, pro- 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 yeah, proper proper UK nan. That, yeah, you know what great. I mean? Yeah, just, she knew what she was doing. So they, they raid the house, and as I said, I just split up with my girlfriend at the time. We were on the rocks, and I had. And this is this is one of the best one of the one of the best stories that I take from all, and it always makes me laugh, and I, and I hope it made the police laugh at the time. But I just split up with this the girlfriend that I was with, and I just started seeing someone new, and we had we had a, a load of sex toys, you know, we we had a really you know, passionate relationship, we had a ton of sex toys, and I just started seeing someone new, and I thought I can't keep them in the house, and for the life of me, I, I couldn't throw them away. Fuck knows why. I thought I'm not I'm not throwing them away because there was still a chance we were going to get back together. So I thought I'm not chucking them. I thought I've got a spare safe. So I had, I had this this big this big safe, and I had the safe at me nan's because it was just spare. <laughs> so I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll put the I'll put all the sex toys in the safe, and I'll put the safe at me nan's, and me nan doesn't know the code, so they can just stay there, no issues. No one's going to find them, no issues whatsoever. So obviously, the police have then raided the house and found this safe. So they thought they did the jackpot. So they drag this safe out onto the, onto the front garden. This is on this like wide council estate road, middle of a Saturday afternoon like riot vans, police everywhere. There must have been 15 police there, so my nan tells me. And they put the, <laughs> they've got the, the red key, they call it, I think, and it's the, the big steel pole that they whack doors down with, and they've got this on the front, and they think, ah, oh, we've got this fucker banging the life out of the front of this safe, thinking they're going to open up, and there's going to be guns, drugs, cash, and everything in there. Boom, boom. My nan said, you should have seen how happy they were, then they found it. You know, we've, we've got him smashing it to bits. It took, them, it took them about 10 minutes to blow the door off the front of this safe. And obviously once they've opened it, it's just full of rubber dicks, anal beads, the whole works. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so they thought they'd hit the jackpot and all they've done was found this big, you know, this this mass collection of, of sex toys. And obviously I still laugh about it to this day. And if you're a police officer, surely to God, they found that funny. Do you know what I mean? And, 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 but me nan had never mentioned it to me until the day she died. She never mentioned what they found in that safe at all. Never ever mentioned she it. Never it, mentioned it. It never come up whatsoever. No, bless her. So she was, she was, she was street enough to know to go and bury my money, but she wouldn't talk to me about the dildos they found in the safe. Do you know what I mean? The, the, yeah. the, that, that was the line. I'm happy to go and bury your dirty money, but I'm not going to mention. I'm not going to mention the dildos. Bless my nan. So they, they, so they found nothing anyway. So Merseyside police come back to them and, and must have said, "Look, we found nothing but some." But some sex toys. Do you want these? Do you know what I mean? We've got nothing on him. So you're going to have to let him go. So they let us go at like midnight. Took our took our uh, took our bank cards off us, our phones, everything. Just give us our passports and said, "Look, the the airport's five miles that way. See you later." Let us go, and then I was on, I was on bail. I was due to return a few months later. Um, and then I was still on bail for the charge for the initial charge that I got in the UK. 
So when they tried to get me to go back to Jersey to answer to these charges, because at this point I didn't know this kid did give them everything on me. I didn't know this. I thought they've got nothing on me. And then they asked me to go back for a second interview. I thought, ah, so look, I've still got this UK thing. Let me resolve this first and then I'll come back and I'll answer these questions or whatever. And they said, yeah, yeah, fine. And some months went by and they said, right, we really need you to come back now. So my, I said to my solicitor, I said, look, get back to them. Tell them I can't afford it. Tell them I can't afford to fly to Jersey. So we found the police officer who's in charge of the case. He's like, look, Nick can't afford the flight over. And the, the, the police officer on the other end just laughed at him. He laughed at him down the phone. And he's like, right, okay, I'll get back to you. Comes back about a week later. He's like, right, we're going to pay for his flight. When's he want to come over? We'll pay for it. The solicitor comes back to me. He's like, Nick, they're gonna, it's not really much you can say now. Do you know what I mean? I was like, well, just tell him I'm not going. So he gets back to them and says, look, he, he's not coming. Simple as that. He isn't coming over. They're like, right, okay. And then about another week went by. And for whatever reason, and I don't know why they did this at the time, they said, well, we're going to come for him. We've applied for the European arrest warrant. It's been successful. We're going to come and get him. And I don't know why they notified my solicitor of that, but anyway, they, they notified him. He told me, and I, I still remember where I was at the time. I was, I was sat at the beach with uh, one of my best friends in my car. I got the call from Sam and my solicitor. who's like, he's like Sol of Breaking Bad. He's, he's brilliant. If there's a way he can bend the situation, he'll bend it. You know what I mean? He, he's absolutely brilliant. But he just said, Nick, look, they're coming. So what do you mean? He's like, they're coming. Got a European arrest warrant. They're going to come and get you. They're going to take you back to Jersey. This, this is it. There's, not, there's nothing you can do now. So, you know, I, I sat there for five, ten minutes, you know, just I couldn't comprehend what was about to happen next. I thought the only thing I can do is go on the run. So I put my car in storage, took everything out of the apartment, put that in storage, and there was nothing more I could do. And I spent the next three months living in different hotels, moving around. And it, that, was, that was a really miserable time. Because obviously, I mean, we see on movies, you know, when people are on the run, they're on the lam and it looks glamorous and it's miserable. Eating hotel food, I sleeping. Th- I, th- I think your whole life up until that point, you know, from when you left free running, I think really when you break it down, the whole life was miserable, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, completely. Like, like you know what I mean like you, you're surrounded by all these low energy people doing low energy stuff parasites you know if you if you lay in the bed lay in a dog's bed with fleas you're gonna you're gonna get fleas aren't you like essentially is what you were doing yeah and the the reason why I'm glad that you're you're going into so much detail in in this is because I want people who listen to pick this up is like you know you control the whole destiny of your life at every point right there's a series of choices that you've made here that just keep compounding in the wrong direction. Yeah. So if that's the truth, then then it means that any you can make a choice in any part of your life to compound things in the right direction, which is a beautiful thing, isn't it? But it it's, is, just, yeah. it's just that people don't realise it. They don't until you've... I mean, I've obviously experienced it to the extreme, and that's what's enabled me to understand it as well as I do. And, and, and when I went to prison later on, like I, I really opened my eyes to it. So I'm on the run, I'm really unhappy, I'm eating hotel food and bored and there's only so many people you can speak to because, well, they're probably watching them if they're looking for you. So you can't really speak to anybody, you're changing your number all the time in case they've got what number you are and they're tracking your location, you're trying to book in different hotels under different names, which isn't easy in itself, you're stuck with crap TV, crap food, you can't see anybody, it's miserable, it's like being in prison, like being on the run is not glamorous at all. And eventually, like, I was like, three months went by and it, there was nothing, no sign of anything, no doors had gone through, no family members had been harassed. I thought, they were bluffing, they weren't coming for me in the first place, like, there's, there's no issue here whatsoever. So I thought, fuck it, I'll take my stuff out of storage, they're not coming for me. So I took my car out of storage, I said to my mum, I was like, look, let me stay at yours for a few weeks till this settles, I'm going to sort somewhere else out. Um, You know, just 
under one condition. I said, while I'm here, I'll do you a favour. I'll, I'll, I'll fit the whole house out. You know, I'll get, I'll get everywhere furnished, everything redone. I said, I'll do that while I'm here for you, just to, to give, give, give you something. But under one condition, just don't open the door. If anyone knocks, don't open the door. That's all I ask of you. And I must have been there a week. And the lads who I was working on the doors with were having a... Obviously, I'd stopped working on the doors at this point because I was on the run, but they were having a party in town. Everyone was getting together. So I thought, okay, I'll go over. So I've driven over with one of my mates in the passenger seat through through the tunnel. Because Merseyside's separated into two halves. You've got the Wirral and Liverpool. And obviously, where I was at my mum's on the Wirral, there's a tunnel that goes from the Wirral through to Liverpool. So I've got my mate in the passenger seat and I'm going out with the lads and I brought a load of bits over for the lads, just a load of drugs for free. So we had a couple ounces of coke in the, time, uh, uh, in the car, a few hundred pills that we're just going to give out to everybody. And they were in the central res. And we've come through the tunnel and we've come through the world side, through the tunnel, and just as we've coming out towards the Liverpool, the Liverpool side, again, police car comes behind me, no sirens, police car comes behind me. My, my mate Tom's in the passenger seat and I'm like, they're going to pull me here. This, this is it, this is it. I said, Will you, will you put them to bed for me? He said, yeah, 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 sounds. He, he puts them down his pants. I thought, this is it. I said, they're only going to take me. You don't worry about it. I said, don't say nothing. Like, just let them take me. And, be. and they block the tunnel off. Another car swoops around, swoops in front of me. This one, they kind of block me in. Sirens go on. I thought, this is it. It's over now. Do you know what I mean? It's about eight o'clock on a Saturday night. It's chaos. Cars everywhere. They block off the end of the tunnel. Police woman comes to the front of the car. She's like, can I take your name? This is a bit more polite than I was expecting. I was like, yeah, yeah, gives them my name. She said, whose is the car? And I'm in a brand new Range Rover here. Like the reg plate on it was worth about 15 grand, never mind the car. I was like, oh, it's my mum's. So I put it in my mum's name. What does your mum do? She's a care worker. She just looks at me. She's like, right, okay. So your mum's a care worker and this is her car. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm just insured on it. Yeah. And she just looks at me like, you fucking idiot. Um, she said, you know, she takes some more details off me, insurance, whatever else. And she goes back to the front of the car and she's on a walkie-talkie and she's just looking at me for a few minutes, comes comes back. She asked me something else. I was like, can you ask why you've stopped me? And she's like, well, Merseyside police have asked us to stop you. So these must have just, this like tunnel police, they're still, still a branch of the police, but they, you know, they work in partnership with the police. They've asked me to stop. I said, okay. So I'm just waiting for them to say, right, you're under arrest. You're coming with us. And she was stood in front of the car for about 10 minutes on this radio. She comes back to the car. She said, okay, you can go. That's said to me, I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to argue with them. Let's go. So we went. We had a night out, whatever else. What had actually happened there that I didn't know till later is that Jersey Police had called over to Merseyside Police and asked them to track my car through AMPR so that they knew it was me driving it. So when they flew over to come and get me, they weren't wasting time. All they'd have to do was see where my car was at any one particular time. Because I put it in storage, they, they weren't tracking me. So they were just waiting me for me to use that car again. Because I was, because I was this egotistical maniac at the time I had pictures of my car on Facebook with my private reg plate and everything else so they knew exactly what car I had what reg plate I had so they were just waiting for me to use my car so once they'd stopped me that day that was the sign to Jersey police then to right come over and all you're going to have to do when you get here is just wait till he goes past a camera with AMPR and you can get him it was only a couple of days later I'm in bed at my mum's 10 o'clock in the morning and obviously she's under specific instruction do not open the door door goes I'm half asleep and I just hear my mum screaming downstairs, get the fuck out of my house. She, she's like trying to barricade the door. She thought it was the postman and just as she'd open it, there'd been a squad of police lined up to ram through the house and she's trying to like hold the door against this team of police trying to burst in. And they come in, I heard them coming up the stairs and I had a load of cash on the side. I had like three mobiles and 
I grabbed these wedges of cash in the phones and just chucked them under my pillow like that was somehow going to, you know, they weren't going to find that, of course, under my pillow. So the police come upstairs and the first police officer to come upstairs was one of the Jersey police officers. So there was like three police from Jersey had come over and there was like 12 Merseyside police. And he comes in, a, he comes up towards where I was staying in the room. I just put my hands up. I was like, look, just let me get dressed. I'll come with you. There's not going to be any hassle because like, I've never really understood the mentality that criminals have got where they see police as the the enemy and fuck the police, fucking hate the police. But I'm, and what what they don't understand is, or you know what they're what they're unable to comprehend is the only reason that you're able to make money with that illegal commodity is because the police exist. If you eliminate the police from the process and you legalize that drug, you're just going to get a commercial entity that's going to come in and sell it, and you're not going to be able to compete with them. So the only reason you're able to make any money from drugs whatsoever is because the police exist and because there are laws that make it illegal. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So it's just the way I, the way I seen it at the time is just a cat and mouse game. Like these guys, these guys are the reason I can make money. They're just doing their job. I'm doing my job, and it's just can I can I outplay you, Did, or are you trying to outplay me? But at this point in your life, are you thinking this is the worst day of your life? Because I because I kind of see it as like the best day of your life. Because I, because it's like for me listening to this story, it's like I was so hyped when you got into free running. And you're just doing your thing and this and that. And, and now you spent these years just going into the darkest depths of hell, surrounding yourself with equivalent to bond life, just lowering your consciousness on all levels. Just, just to, just to essentially, I still think at this point, mask you being hurt, you know what I mean? And not processing the, the trauma. You know, I think that's where you're at at this point, yeah? Yeah, it was, and it wasn't until about two days later that it really hit me. So they, they've they've arrested me, and to be fair to the Jersey police, they were they were sound. Get Gets on the plane with them. So they took me, so you know, they're searching the house first and foremost, and my mum's still trying to fight with the police. And I'm like, look, just stop. You're not achieving anything. You're going to get yourself arrested. Just, just chill out. Let them do what they're going to do, because they're going to do it anyway. Just let them do what they're doing. And I hear one of the police say, "Did he want his devices? Because I had a computer there and some phones. You know, did did they want the police? Did they want did they want the devices? Did they want the computer?" Referring to the Jersey police officers who were upstairs, and I just heard the Merseyside police officer go, "No, no, they don't need anything. They've got more than enough." Yeah. From what they were, and as soon as I heard that, right, I'm, I'm fucked. Yeah. So there was no there was no point making a fuss about it. I was just said to him, "I was like, just calm down. Look, I'll I'll, I'll contact you when I get there or whatever's going to happen." They took me straight from the house to the airport. I get marched through the airport. Busy, bu- busy late morning at this point. I'm coughed walking through the airport. Like it, it's so dramatic. How long did they put you away for in the end? I got six years in the end, but obviously I, I, re- I remained on remand for a while. And, and it wasn't until like so I spent the first night in a police station. And they didn't even interview me, and that's when you know you're really fucked. When they don't even need to ask you questions, that's when yeah. you know you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the second day, I spent the first day in a police station. Then the second day going to prison. Now. I'm coming out of this chapter of my life where all I've been doing is watching Donnie Brasco, Godfather, Goodfellas, you know, all, you, all, all of these, all of these gangster movies. So when you see prison, you see American prison and you think, yeah, fuck, this is, this is going to be terrifying. But, but do you think, is is any point in your mind going to the place where you're like, you're thinking, do you know what? Six years that I'm getting are directly proportional to the amount of pain that I've probably caused by selling this substances. Not at this point. So that, that took me a couple of weeks to reach that because I wasn't aware of... Cause I the never, hurt. Like, You're not yeah, aware yeah, of Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't aware of the hairs or even the consequences of what I've done for me or for other people. But what I want people to understand through this is like at all levels of the game, hurt people hurt people. 
Yeah, it's just a domino effect. It's, it, it's just it's just anybody out there doing what you were doing or doing, you know, it's, it's anything that illegal or anything disempowering. It's all because they're coming from a place of hurt. You know, and if you don't solve that in your life at any point in time, if you don't accept the pain that you're in and work to move through and work to answer the shadows in your life, then you end up keep pursuing these things. And it just takes, it just takes one turn and another turn, another turn, another turn. This could have been stopped fucking way back when you went on the doors or before then, even when you went in the, 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 the second, third muscle gym, do you know what I'm saying? It's like, and it, and this all, this all start, this all literally started because unanswered pain and then boredom from, from an injury. And then now you're inside for six years. And that's all it takes is that little seed. And if you, and if you, if you're not careful, if you don't nurture yourself in a particular direction, it, it can manifest into something, you know, really, really extreme and detrimental, which is what happened. But it wasn't until a few weeks later that I started to kind of grasp the damage that I'd done to myself or the people around me or the effect that the drugs that I was selling were having on people until I kind of got a look at what prison life was like. Cause obviously all I've done has been watching these movies and it's glamorized, it's romanticized. Yeah. Gangsters, it's cool, you know, rap music, hip hop, you know, it's all, it's all, you know, this pitch is painted of it being this really kind of sweet life and everyone thinks it's dead cool and everything else, but the reality is so much different to what's portrayed in the media. Because essentially you're doing what you resented being done to you. Exactly, yeah. You, you're just inflicting harm. You're inflicting harm. Someone, someone's, someone's inflicted harm on you as a child and you've gone essentially and gone and inflicted harm on probably lots of other people that you that, and and like i say like this that's how it spirals isn't it that's how it starts to come down the track and you know that's why energy is so real whatever you put out comes back to you at some point completely and the, the react it wasn't like the second day i'm in there and obviously i'm full of hormones as well at this point and, and like it, it you know the, the the first moment that i remember of going to prison is is something that i talk about quite frequently when i tell this story is that i'm i'm I sat at my, my desk in this prison. Well, initially I'm going into this prison expecting it to be like Shawshank. I'm, you know, I'm expecting gangs, like race gangs, and it to be like really old school. But Jersey is, Jersey's an anomaly. It's like a holiday camp. So my initial, my my initial interpretation of what real prison was like was, was very mild going into Jersey. But still, <laughs> once that door bangs shut behind you, that's when it hits home. And I remember it just hitting me out of nowhere. Like even this whole time I've been on the run and I knew this was coming up that it hadn't kind of registered with me and then as soon as that door clanked shut and you're on your own and it hit me so hard and I was bawling my eyes out because you know I I just come out of this relationship with a bit which was a bit rocky and I was still hoping that I was going to get back together so obviously all the paranoia with the tremble and everything else like I've lost everything my girlfriend oh she's going to cheat on me I'm going to lose this I'm going to lose that I'm going to lose all this money my friends everything else and I'm crying my eyes out into this plastic this blue plastic bowl that you get with my cornflakes into it and I'm, I'm this is why I always remember it because I, I was laughing and crying at the same time and I'm crying into this bowl of cornflakes and I'm still trying to eat it because I'm not really eating in two days and I can I'm eating these, I'm eating these cornflakes and I can taste the salt of my tears in the cornflakes so I remember chuckling to myself while I was crying at the same time do you know what I mean there's this mixture of emotions and and in the weeks that followed I didn't know what I was looking at and I guess my I get to this duty advocate, this duty solicitor at the time, and he was like, oh, the only similar case in here is, is two years. That's the only one that's a similar quantity to what you're telling me about. Because all there was at the time was these this methadone that you'd been caught with this guy. So that's what I thought the charges were. So he said, you're probably looking at two years maximum. 
week goes by. It'd been about six, seven days at this point, and they, they come to the cell door. You know, you, 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 your solicitor's on the phone. He needs you to call them. So it goes, gets on the prison phone, phones up, and spoke to my, my, my then solicitor. And she said, I need to make you aware there's been some extra charges. I said, well, what are they? I said, well, your initial charge was conspiracy to import Class B methadrone. I said, okay, what are the new charges? She's like, well, there's been two additional counts added on for conspiracy to import ecstasy, which is Class A, and an additional counts of conspiracy to import cannabis, Class B. So there's four charges now. I said, well, how does, how does that change things now? If I was looking at maybe two years what does that change? She's like, well, the, ma- the maximum penalty for what you're charged with now is 14 years. The fuck do you mean? 14 years? 14 years. Now, I didn't understand the prison system at the time, and obviously I, it wasn't until much later on that I understood that wherever you get, you serve half, and half of that half you generally serve in an open prison, and you know you break it down, and it's not not quite what it sounds, but to somebody who's naive to the prison system, you say 14 years, I'm like, I'm only 20, 23 at this point. This was this was it was my birthday actually. The first day I went in was my twenty fourth birthday. So that was the day that I was went in. It was twenty fourth of October 23rd of October two thousand and fourteen. And my first day in prison was my birthday. So you so you got fourteen years in the end. No, no, no. So that's that's what she told me. I was looking at fourteen years. I thought I'm not going to get out till I'm thirty eight. And obviously, how how it come to pass? Long long story short, I ended up getting six years reduced from nine and a half or ten because you get a starting point and then they take time off for. Your guilty plea, you get like thirty three percent off. If you if you if you say if you throw your hands up early and say I'm guilty, they'll give you a third off because you've saved them the time and money of proven otherwise. You saved the taxpayer, basically, yeah. So I, you know, I, I was banged to right, threw my hands up, got six years, and then the, the turning point for me, from a like a psychological point, from from understanding how much I'd, I'd lost myself. It took me a few months because obviously, A, I had to let the hormones process, process out of my system because I've gone cold turkey from the, the, the two, three years of steroid abuse that I'd had. Plus, obviously, the, the, the coming to the realization of, right, you're in prison now. This is it. This is you for a while. <clears throat> so a few months had gone by. and You know, people were initially sending me letters in and everything, all from this kind of, this, this, this fake community that I'd become a part of, this, this materialistic world, all these people that had latched onto me who were there for the champagne parties and the big, you know, the 15 bedroom apartments and the fancy cars and, you know, that champagne lifestyle. For the first few weeks, they're all writing and sending pictures in and, Everyone wants to be a part of it initially because when you hit the news, it's like, oh, that's my friend. Yeah, you know, he's you know he's, he's the bad boy, and you know it's all good and well. And then within about six weeks, people slowly start to forget you even exist. You know, the, and these are, the, these are people that have been latched onto you every single day, and they're just emotional and financial parasites. They're just there for the ride, and they're there for the initial buzz. And then when that tapers off, they start to drift away. And I remember it perfectly. The realization that I had, and I was. I was telling the story only last week. You get a, a picture board in your cell in, in Jersey, and it's like a like a hard foam board, quite big, maybe, maybe two meters by a meter on the wall of your cell where you pin your pictures up. And for the first like eight weeks that I was there, maybe twelve weeks, I'm getting all these pictures sent in. So on the wall was pictures of fancy cars, big champagne parties, you know, all this fancy lifestyle. I covered this wall in in this 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 life that I had leading up to it. And these people were keeping in touch. and So that's essentially your vision board? Basically, yeah. So th- this was a reflection of what my life had been for the 12 months leading up to there and what I thought represented me and what I wanted. Yeah. And these people slowly started drifting away. And it, it, I, I, I didn't notice the, the gradual change of the board. 
but some people had stopped getting in touch and some of the people from my former life because I lost a lot of friends because I lost myself so much I've gone from being this really good community-based guy who was well respected to being this this violence power crazy egomaniac so a lot of the people that I grew up with who I had a lot of time and respect for had really distanced themselves from me so I'd lost them but as far as I was concerned that was their problem nothing wrong with me you know what I mean I hadn't changed I couldn't understand why they didn't like me and they they'd gone away, and I had this new circle around me. So it was the new circle, the new circle I started with. And then they slowly started to drift away, and people started to reappear from my old life and get in touch and curious how I'm doing. You know, they'd speak to some other. How's Nick getting on? How do I get in touch? And I didn't notice the the, the, the progression of this board. And I'd slowly started taking pictures down of this life from the last twelve months and slowly replacing it with pictures of old. From the free running days, from my original friends from school, from stuff that actually was wholesome to you, exactly, yeah. And but I, but I didn't notice, I didn't notice it until the whole board was changed. And obviously, this this was over a period of months, and you don't really notice it one picture at a time. And I, and I just remember looking at the board one day, and it, like, it hit me so hard. And it's strange that I didn't notice it happening until the whole board had changed, and then it was like, wow. All of them pictures that were initially up there, the cars, the lifestyle, everything, everything had gone, and the only thing that was on that board was the life that I had before that. And they were the only people that had kept in touch with me. And that was the only thing that was bringing me happiness at that point. At probably the hardest point in my entire life in prison, the only thing that was bringing me any any positivity, any any strength, mental strength, any resilience whatsoever, was now looking at this board that was filled with images of a life that pre-existed the one that I'd fallen into. And that was that was so sudden, the realisation of it, because... There was, there was no progressive like, oh, they're starting to drop off and new people are coming in. I didn't see any of that for whatever reason because I was going through such such a hard time emotionally because of coming off the steroids. My hormones were completely out of whack and I was crying over nothing. We do a Coronation Street on or something and I just start crying my eyes out for no reason whatsoever. So I was going through a really difficult time with my hormones because I'd absolutely destroyed my, my pituitary gland. Like I wasn't functioning properly at all. So that was probably why my, my vision was really clouded at the time. And then sort of like coming out and kind of waking and be, becoming conscious again. And then seeing this board was like, wow. I noticed how you said there, like becoming conscious. Yeah. And that, like, that, like, and that is a, a real great way to put it. Because I think for so long, you lost identity of actually who you truly were. And I think that's what led everything. Completely. And and. and that takes me back to what I was saying before about this facade that we live with. And it's something that I talk about frequently because I think it's a, a serious danger for people in all walks of life of this image that we portray on social media and the the potential for you to become that lost in that fiction that you forget that that is the fiction. And all of a sudden you, you, you feel the need to continue feeding this fiction because it's what you think people want or an image that you think that you need to portray. And it, it's so... If you don't keep that in check, it's so easy to lose sight of reality and what you really are and become consumed by this fiction that you've created. And all of a sudden, you've lost your values. You've lost what's meaningful for you. And you're essentially just becoming a clown in a circus, putting I, on a performance. I had um, the same thing. I've talked about it quite a few times on here. But, you know, I was a boxing trainer, mate. And I just wanted to be known as Frankie Lee, the boxing trainer. Frankie Lee, the world title boxing trainer. Frankie Lee, the boxing trainer. Like, and and it really didn't didn't mean anything. It was just it was just a uh, a way that I could prove to something to the world that I didn't need to prove anyway. Now I wasn't involved in any criminality, and I've never have been. But it's it's the same. In in essence, it's the same as what you're saying. It's like that that would have led me down a narrative that if I didn't stop and just go, actually, this isn't what I'm about then 
it's just opening doors and compounding in the wrong direction. It's taking me towards what I actually don't want. And I think there's a lot of people that might resonate listening to this because there'll be a lot of things that you're doing in your day-to-day life that you think you actually like, but they're actually you're actually doing them. You're actually taking part in them because you think that means that to someone else or you think that means you look that way. And then, but but you kind of forget as a human that that compounds into you getting more and more of the of of the same things along the path, a path that you don't even fucking want. And you, and, and one day, whether it's you get hit with the criminality stuff and you sat in your cell like you were, or whether you stood in the boxing ring, uh, boxing ring on a world title fight, looking out at fifteen thousand people, it doesn't matter when it fucking hits you. But when that realization hits you, you can't unsee it. And the pain and regret that you feel in that moment when you're hit with it is like nothing I can fucking explain. Because you just think to yourself, and I don't know if you if you thought this, but the the, the trajectory of me as, as a professional boxing trainer was six years, right? The trajectory you were on in the prison was six years or, or, or getting to prison was probably like five, six years as well. And I felt the pain of regret because I thought, fuck, I've wasted all my all this life that I've I've put all this time and energy into this life that doesn't even represent who the fuck you are. You don't even know who you are, mate. Who the fuck are you? And and it that made me fucking so emotional and and, and to cry through. I had to cry through that pain because I'm I didn't recognise who the fuck I was. And that, that that and that's the danger. And it, it's becoming easier and easier to fall victim to that type of situation with social media because it's now that we're able to be to be the <clears throat> the architects of our own narrative so to speak we can we can display any type of image or lifestyle that we want to because nobody keeps you in check because you're just putting this this image out to the world no one can really verify what you're doing unless they know you personally and for most of the time your audience they don't know you on a personal level so you can portray wherever wherever image that you want whereas 15 years ago, you couldn't walk around the street saying, I've got X, Y, and Z, or this is the life I do, because you're only talking to the people that live on the street, and they know you're full of shit. So it, the, the danger comes when you start portraying this image to the world that isn't an accurate representation of yourself, and then you become so consumed by the feedback that you get pretending to be this this fictional character that you then get completely engrossed in the role, and you forget who you are entirely. Yeah, And it's not until you get that, you know, that, that, that wake-up call of, wow, the, the you, you you manifestation must be real because you 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 genuinely become what you think about the most, right? So I'm obsessively obsessively consistent with the podcast and my vision for the podcast and what it's going to do for people. And over three years, I'm a damn sight further ahead than when I started because I'm compounding with the right vehicle the thing I actually truly want to do in the right direction. But that also works going the other way. So it's like, you know, you got to, you got to make sure that whatever you're talking about, whatever you're being about, whatever you're surrounded by is in the, is, is, is in the narrative and direction of what actually what you truly want to achieve when you strip back all the bullshit from it which is what me and you have had to find out in different ways and different ways are hard, but we both had to find it out, didn't we? It is, yeah. You've got to pursue what you want, not what other people want you to be. And you can't get lost in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, the social feedback loop of doing things for likes. 
and me and you could do things a lot differently in, in both in our own line, lines of work that would get higher interaction, higher engagement, and that becomes addictive. Yeah. And all of a sudden you start modifying your own behavior to tailor to what your audience wants, forgetting the fact that you only have an audience to begin with because of who you are. And then you start, again, being consumed by this fiction that you've created and you lose yourself so much and you lose your own values. And that's how you become unhappy so quickly because you play and pretend. And there's only so long you can play pretend until you realize, oh, this isn't what I want. Well, there's, 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 top, there's top podcasters in this game that are not about podcasting. They're not really about podcasting. Podcasting was all about building an image for themselves that predicated on falsehoods. And they've told people that they've done this in business and they've told people they've done that and they've done that. And they're also juiced up on fake analytics when they've not really got the listenership that they say they have. And, and all that stuff just is just going to come back to haunt that those podcasters because they're not about it. They're not, they're not doing it for the right reason. They're not about it. It, it, it takes Look how long it took Rogan to get to the top of the game. It takes 10 years, right? You've got, you got to put your heart and soul into it for 10 years. It's fucking art, and you've got to respect it as such. And if you don't, you get found out. And there's a lot of people in this game, and a lot of people in a lot of games are playing games that they shouldn't be fucking playing because they're not about it. You've got to, be, you've got to actually be about the game that you're playing. Otherwise, you're going to get smacked about. <laughs> Simple as that. It's like you, you, and, and I think the best thing, like, like we've said 16 times already, like the best thing that ever happened to you is you being sat in that cell, looking at that vision on the, on the board there and seeing that you, the only time in your life that you were truly happy and truly complete is when you were, were putting out positive into the world. You know, that's a clear reflection of what was on the board. You're doing things for other people. You're actually having a care. You're actually having a thought for someone else other than yourself. You know what I'm saying? And and, and that led you to all your success. So at that point, did you then decide to kind of like not repent your sins in a, in a religious way, but did you kind of try and repent what you did? Did you start to like apologize to yourself, but also apologize to others and stuff? Apologize to others was a big one for me. And <clears throat> I reached out to a lot of the people that I'd lost and you have nothing but time in prison to dwell on thoughts and dwell on what you've lost and what you have and what you don't have and what you want to have. And I reached out to so many people that I'd lost from the previous life and tried to explain how I'd gotten so lost. And I'm, I'm writing pages and pages of letters and sending them out and really, you know, and, and a lot of my old friends were, <clears throat> were happy to reconnect. And that, that really helped guide me through the rest of the sentence. And I was away for three years in total and I come out probably better than I ever had had been in my entire life. And I, I'd got a taste of what the other half of that world looks like. And when you're in prison, you, you meet all these different people who they've been in the game 10, 15, 20 years and they don't have anything whatsoever. And you know that, that they've, they've, you can clearly see that, that following the path and keep <clears throat> repeating the patterns not going to take you much further. Yeah, of course. And obviously the, the danger that you run is if, if you're messing around in drugs or if you're messing around in, you know, uh, class A's and the sentences that come with, with, getting involved in things like that, you have to equate the time you're going to get for the earnings that you've made over the time that you've done it. And chances are, for the most part, unless you're making <clears throat> three, four hundred, five hundred, six hundred grand a year minimum, the inevitable sentence that you're going to get, if you do the math, if you divide the time that you spent in prison and the amount of money that you've made and the time it took you to make it, if you've only made a couple of hundred grand, then you're going to save four years in prison and it's took you four years to make it eight years you're on less than minimum wage. It just wasn't worth it. And as much as it might seem flash at the time, once you calculate in the time that you're going to spend in prison, you work for less than minimum wage. 
whilst you're out there living this life, dealing, looking down on people who are working in retail, in McDonald's, in H&M, Topshop, looking down and thinking, I wouldn't work for that. When the reality is... You are. You're working for half that. And yeah. that, that's that's what a lot of people don't understand. They think that the short money that they're making is big money, but you, they're not taking into consideration that on a long enough time scale, if you're in the game, you're going to jail. And if you're doing it on a big enough scale where it's, you know, you're, you're making a decent amount of money, you're getting a lot of time. And you've got to be top of the game, top of the game for it to be worth it. And even then, <clears throat> if you've been arrested for it and you are top of the game and you have got all these assets, you're probably going to lose them all anyway. Yeah, because they're all gained. By, by they're, all, they're all illegal gains. Yeah. And if, you, if you've if you got them illegal gains hidden and they are aware of that or they're at least got the, 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 you know, the idea that you're hiding these assets, you get extra time on top for not handing that money over. So yeah. Like to Curtis Warren, he got 10 years for cannabis that never existed. And then they, they calculated the, what the drugs would have been worth. And they, the drugs never happened. This was just a conversation. That This was just a plan. 10 years for the drugs. Well, we value them the drugs at a, a million pounds. Bearing in mind that same quantity of drugs I could have bought for 30, 40 grand, so I'm sure you got it for buttons. But they put the street value of a million pounds, and they said, right, well, we think you've got a million pounds, so either pay us the million pound for the drugs that never existed, or we're going to give you an extra 10 years. He said, I'm not paying you. So they give him 20 years, 10 years for the drugs, 10 years for the, the, the money equivalent of the drugs, because he wouldn't pay it for drugs that never existed. So we might... But, might- but, 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 but it's, it's important that we understand that that negativity hit that man because in direct proportion to the negativity that he put out into the world through what he was doing. Now, whether it was fair or not in terms of like the, the wrong thing, but the world will directly pay you back what you put out into the world. Oh, completely. And, and that, that is just how the universal laws work. Like forget the actual criminal law. Like that's, that's just the universe evening up the debt of the damage that was caused to the human beings that, 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 that person sold drugs to that you can't, you can't get, you can't get away from it. You can't. And it's just not worth being in it. And he's top of the game and even he's going to come out now and he's lost what, what decades you, you, of his life. It's, it's just not a, it's not a game worth getting into. And maybe 20, 30 years ago it was, but as I say, once you calculate the time and it's not, it's but the, not, but the six years that you got were harsh for what you actually got done for in the physical moment but it wasn't harsh if you think about the amount of lives that were changed by this stuff that you were selling and all that kind of stuff which i'm sure you can accept yeah completely and everything that i got away with yeah yeah if you'd have if i'd have been caught for everything that i got away with i'd have looked a lot more than six years so how i took that was the world the world the world's giving you a backhander so that you can change yourself i've got an opportunity here it's it's a long enough sentence to 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 wake me up but not long enough that my life is over and when I come out of prison, I was so motivated to come back out and have a strong network around me. And I come out in such a positive space and I fell back into my original friend circles with all of the good energy. But what was the, what, what were you doing every day in prison that was that allowed you to come out in this positive headspace? Were you meditating? Were, what, were you visualizing you as, as a better man? Like, I know it sounds, sounds silly to say it, but you, but I've, people don't realize this who listen to this podcast, but I used to teach carpentry in jail. Like I used to, that's what I used to do. I did it for a year. So I've I've taught some of the most serious offenders in the UK at, at one point of time, carpentry, and I've spoken to many, many offenders, right? So I know how much of a soulless task it is. And in order for you to come out of that jail and in a positive headspace, you've had to do something in your cell that other people aren't doing. 
because they're just they're just going a lot of them go out ninety percent of them come back and repeat criminal offences because you put a criminal in a criminal environment they're just getting taught out more criminality by more criminals so how are you keeping yourself away from that yeah I mean prison prison is just a university for crime isn't it at the end of the day you, you you're putting small small level criminals in with big fish and giving them the opportunity to network and market and, and come out ten times worse which is what most of them do and you know as you say most end up back in for the simple fact that you've spent four years in prison doing nothing productive whatsoever and all you've done is create a wider network and you come out of prison with no job you know no family you know and for the most part and the guys that you meet in there it's a very sorry state of affairs they don't have anything whatsoever in way of, in way of money to spend each week you're only getting your four pounds or if you're if you're in a carpentry workshop you're probably getting about 12 pound a week for being in there and engaging on the course but that doesn't go a long way and during your journey in prison chances are if you're in a relationship or you're married you know 80 90 percent of relationships in prison they expire, they come to an end because it's just so, so difficult. So you lose your marriage, you default on your mortgage, your kids give up on you. You know, you, you, you lose absolutely everything and you walk out of that prison gate with no job, no wife, kids resent you. You go to the job centre, no one will take you on because you've got, you know, you've got no, you've been to prison. If you've got two, two, if you've got two candidates and one's been to jail with the exact same qualifications as the guy who's not been to jail, you're going to take the guy with the cleaner record on you. So, you, you know, you're set up to fail from the get-go. Probation, you get no help from whatsoever. So most people are stuck and that's why we have such a, 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 a vicious cycle as you've just said so that what what was different for me is that the support network that I had emotionally and this is why you're inside yeah this is while I'm inside and because of what I had achieved running up to falling into them darker circles I, I still had you know I'd had copies of the newspapers and everything I'd been in in a positive sense sent in for my mitigation in court so I had all this documentation all this positive stuff that I'd done all the charity work I'd done in the past so that the prison really enabled me to help so they, they had me as the the health and well-being mentor for the prison and I was teaching other people doing steroid awareness courses mental health awareness courses courses you know trying to trying to bring people along to the same kind of wavelength that I was on which, which was what kind of kept me sane and it took me back to the lesson that Daniel taught me about putting positive energy out there which which sounds it sounds you know fantastic to go and do that but there, there's a degree of you know, it's not entirely selfless. There's a degree of selfishness in there as well, because when you're being decent to people, you feel better about yourself. And that that that's you know what I mean. If you're being if you're being kind to people, you feel kinder to yourself because you feel like you've done a good thing. You put yourself in a, in in a more of a state of allow yourself some peace. I mean, for, for six years there, you weren't allowing yourself no peace. Yeah, completely. And it, it's a you know when you, when you when you're putting that energy out, it's a symbiotic relationship in that I'm being nice to you, and I feel nice about myself for being nice. And you just continue that loop of positivity, and it, you know it, it enables you to feel happier, other people happy, everybody benefits, no one no one loses whatsoever. So, so that so that was the that was the key element that you found in in prison and by by putting by using that vision board of positivity and then and then putting out positivity on the wing and and everything else that you're on and then you've used that and you've used that as fuel to come out as a more positive human completely positive yeah and i and I come out and just before I come out the the guy that owned the local gym which is forty yards from the house that I grew up in he was a really good friend of mine. And he'd come down from Glasgow to set this gym up. And I'd always had the vision that this was a, it used to be a, a an old school cinema, this building, and it's literally at the top of the road, must be nothing more than 40 yards away from the house I grew up in. And I'd always had a vision of 10 in that empty unit into a gymnasium. And just before I went away, this guy had moved from Glasgow and turned it into a, the local bodybuilding gym. It was like the, the local mecca of bodybuilding. 
and I got really close to him and he, you know, we, we had a you know really good rapport between us. He had a lot of respect for me and he was coming to see me in prison. And just before I got out, it just so happened that his partner's wife had, had become, te- uh, his partner's mother had become terminally ill and they needed to go back to Glasgow and he needed to sell the gym. So he'd, men- he'd mentioned it to me on a, on a visit and he's like, you know, do you know anyone that'd be interested? And I was like, well, what if I can get support and come up with the funds? Would you, would, would you sell it to me? And he's like, of course I would, Nick, you'd, you'd get first refusal. And he told me how much he wanted, and I, and I asked around family, well, friends. Do you know, which, can you say what, how much it was? He wanted a quarter million for it at the time. And I, and I thought, right, okay, I'll ask around. So I still had a lot of friends in, in the business world and stuff like that, people who'd, who'd reconnected with me, and I asked about it. And I couldn't come up with the total at that point. I said, look, I can give you half. How about I give you half for it, and I'll gradually buy the other half off you bit by bit. And he was like, well... Um, someone else is interested at the minute, and, sh- and just 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 by pure coincidence, that fell through. So the deal fell through, and so the opportunity comes. And he's like, "Look, Nick, I really just need to get back to Glasgow. I- I'll give you half of the gym for what you want, and you can buy the other half off me on the condition that you let me go back to Glasgow straight away. You just take the reins, you do what you need to do, and I'll just take mine as as you buy me out slowly but surely on the shares." I was like, "That suits me perfectly." So from the minute I stepped out that gate, I had purpose. That's and I've, brilliant. And I've gone into this bodybuilding gym and I thought, right, I'm not allowing this place to be what tend, what, what, what contributed towards what I was. I'm not allowing this to be a, a pit of vanity and everyone's out for themselves. And I brought in, I implemented the community aspect of the parkour scene into the gym. I got people interacting with each other, doing community events, you know, linking people together and, and took away that ethos of it's every, everything's about everyone for themselves and everything's about, because I, I really don't endorse competitive bodybuilding now whatsoever. I don't think it's healthy at all. And I try and encourage people just to just to beat themselves, just be better than you were last week, be better than you were last year. Don't worry about the man next to you. Because I mean, I, I don't really train a lot anymore, but it would take me six weeks from any one point to get into stage condition just because I've got really good genetics. I could do that or not. Yeah. I've got friends who've been dieting for three years who can't do what I can do in three weeks. And for you to get on stage and compare yourself to somebody who's who's genetically gifted like me if they actually put the work in, which I don't anymore, but you could do three years of solid work and step on stage against someone who's genetically gifted and get absolutely annihilated and you're going to walk away and think, I've spent the last three years giving every single day, eating my food out of Tupperwares, doing my cardio, doing everything right, every everything the book says I should do, I've done it. And I still got absolutely obliterated. You haven't failed. You've just gone up against somebody who you biologically so much, you know, so different to. And for you to compare yourself to someone like that is just a recipe for disaster. And I, and I try and discourage people from competitive bodybuilding. The people that do really want to do it, I said, look, you need to do this for you. So each year you go on stage, the aim is to look better than you did last year, not to place higher than you did last year. Yeah. It's great to win. Of course, yeah. it's great to win. But if you're not genetically gifted, what sense is there of you getting on stage and saying, right, well, I want to be first this year? Well, genetically you're probably not going to be so how about just try and be better than you were last year not everybody's going to be mr olympia not everyone's going to have the heavyweight boxing title just try and be better than you were the year before so you know i i i implemented this community aspect to it and it took off really well and you know everybody started like networking with each other rather than being in there just doing their own thing you know people were talking to each other and I encourage people to network on social media because you know Instagram would only just started taking off and, and it, it changed the the the, fab, the social fabric of the gym completely from being this dark bodybuilding gym where only like the big juice heads went to this community place where people enjoyed going to and people enjoyed hanging out and it was off the back of that that the gym started to get a lot more successful and I, I from the minute 
I bought the gym. I've just come from three years in prison where I was living off a few pounds worth of food a day, tuna and noodles, living on bare basics. So I come out and I was like, look, I don't need any of this materialistic shit anymore. I can live off bare minimum. And if I live off bare minimum, I'll own the whole gym faster than I possibly could if I, if I, you know, if my expenditure is higher. So I bought nothing, spent nothing, lived on absolute basics. And within a very short period amount of time, I'd taken my wage and my half of the profit to the gym Bought my former business business partner out, out out completely. This was probably within six months of me buying it. I had the whole gym to myself, and then it's just grown and grown and grown since then. Obviously, now now we're on three sites, probably off five by the end of the year, and that that's all because I was willing to make them sacrifices and willing to live what minimalistic. A, what a pivot, though! Completely, I've gone from probably the absolute top to the absolute bottom, being in jail, back to the top again. Obviously, went on to hit bottom again and go up again. But that, that was, you know, that turning point enabled me to then go and have the motivation to then climb and climb and climb. And what, what would you say your biggest lesson has been then in the, all of that? <sighs> Keep my ego in check. That's probably the biggest lesson I take from all of it. Cause when it when, whenever I, whenever I'm not consciously aware of where my ego goes, it accelerates very quickly in a direction that I don't like and that isn't good for me whatsoever it puts me in a toxic loop and if I don't stay conscious of it like if I just leave it and focus on positive things great all good and well but then that starts to creep in a little bit yeah. so I have to consciously be aware of the fact all the time that I do have an underlining ego and I do need to keep it in check and be aware of it to anything I do and don't get me wrong it's nice to have nice things and I have nice things now I have a nice car and whatever else but that doesn't define me in the slightest and I, and and that's it's the, it's the awareness piece. That, yeah, it's that, being that aware of it. It's power. nice to have nice things, but to be defined by nice things or to overextend yourself to the point where you're taking stuff out on finance that you can't afford to project this image, that's when it becomes dangerous. And, and the nice things that I have now are relative to the income that I make. Whereas for people around me, they yeah. kind of, they, they overextend themselves and their expenditure way outcomes their income. And that's where the problems become because it, it, it's, it's relative. I mean, if you're a billionaire and you're buying a Ferrari, you think, oh, we, you know, a normal night of high would think what a waste of money. But realistically, that's proportionately probably cost him less than your course or cost you. Do you know what I mean? And it, yeah, it, yeah. It's, you've just got to be aware of where your lane is and stay in your lane, and it, and that's that's completely okay. And if you you know if you if you if you start to feel the need to be defined by the things that you own, that's when it's a slippery slope. And there is every now every now and then I'll catch myself falling victim to it again, and I, I nip it in the bud. And sometimes you know it'll last a day or two, and I'm like, ooh hang on a minute, I need to keep this in check, rein myself back in, or sometimes it'll go for a couple of weeks, and I'm like, hang on a minute, stop. And it's just it's just the awareness of it, the awareness of the potential of it, to just go, right, it's nice to have nice things, I live within my means, everything is proportional to what I make, and, that, and, that, and that's fine. And that's been the biggest lesson for me, is ego, just keep my ego in check, not, being, not getting lost in that fictional character, and just being who I am for the right reasons, and not being who I think people want me to be or what's going to get me the most social social gratification. I just need to stay in my lane and be happy because the mo- most important thing is being happy with yourself. It's all good and well, other people being entertained by what you're doing. But if you're not happy with it, it's just, you're going down a dark, dark path. That's inevitably just, you know, you're going to sell, you're going to self-destruct completely. So I just, I stay in my lane now, try and keep my ego in check best I can. I'm aware of it. And that that's the biggest lesson that I've taken nearly every time is just, just stay aware, stay self-aware own where I am and just just continue in that kind of fashion you know it's it's served me really well and implementing that same ethos again of 
you know, putting out that good energy and being positive to people that has given me so many opportunities in business and people want to be part of that because they see what you're doing and people enjoy it and other business people enjoy it and they want you part of their journey because it's, it's you know, it's good energy. You want to be around people like that all the time. Again, and not even in a wishy-washy sense. Just, just well, You've just, attracted good sponsorships now as well. Like. Yeah, I'm in, a, I'm in a really good place now based off the back of the, the, the positive work that I did through COVID and I, obviously I, I got put on the map just by chance during the pandemic and because I was projecting such a positive image and it, you know the angle that I come at it from was like look we, we just need to stand together and everyone needs to look out for each other and people were really hungry for that mentality because so many of us and I've fallen victim to it myself were just just consumed by hatred and anger yeah and especially with COVID because all, all all COVID did was was exacerbate pre-existing in- issues in society and we become so everything was so politicized that you know, but by nature it become polarized and you were either left or you were right, you were black or you're white. And that just created this friction and everybody hated each other because if you had one opinion and someone else had another opinion, you had to hate each other. There was no, well, you feel that way and I feel this way and that's okay. I don't, I don't hate you for it. We yeah. just have a difference of opinion. It was, you think differently from me. I hate you. And and because everyone was stuck at home and on the internet and it's so easy to, to be, you know, so so much more vile to each other on the internet because you're removing that, that, that physical interaction. It's so easy to say something hateful and just press send, 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 send. And it was just this, this recipe for negativity. So when myself and a, a, a you know, I certainly wasn't alone in, in what I was doing, but I was one of a small percentage of people who were like, look, we just need to go about this the right way. It's a hard time for everybody, regardless of your opinion on the pandemic. We just need to support each other and find the best way through. If you disagree with me, fine. This is this. I feel a particular way. This is why I feel a particular way, and that, that's that's okay if you disagree with me. I don't. I don't. My my opinions don't require you to agree with them for them to for my opinions to exist. This is just the way that I feel. You feel differently, and let's try and have a conversation and find the best way forward, rather than you're 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 completely one way. I'm completely another way, and there's no meeting in the middle, or even an ability to have a conversation about it to try and find common ground. It was just so, so polarized that it, you know, it was so toxic that people were just hungry for someone to come along and say, well, let's just have a conversation about it. Why does everything need to be? Because the news was just perpetuating this, this, you know, this friction of you're either this side or you're that side. And it's so extreme. And obviously because we were feeding into it and they were getting so many clicks, they just carried on and carried on and carried on and carried on. And it got, got so out of control. And it's a shame, and a lot of people lost themselves through COVID, and they lost their personalities. And I think we are starting to come. Just put, just put neighbor against neighbor, didn't it? Essentially, in this country, I think everyone, yeah. everyone just wanted to fight each other. Yeah, and obviously, we weren't making the decisions. It was the politicians that were making the decisions. But the, like the your average person, we were fighting it out amongst each other, and none of us were, were part of the decision process to make the decisions. That o- were happening. Obviously, it affected you a lot because obviously, it shut your gym. Well, they tried. Yeah, <laughs> we so. Obviously, when the first lockdown come around, this was in the the March of 2020, wasn't it? And this this was this was early days of COVID, and this was at the point where we didn't know anything at all. There was this new virus around. We we didn't have any literature, any data, no no statistics, absolutely nothing. We didn't know what it was. And and, and in my opinion, at the time, doing doing that lockdown, which went on for longer than it should have, in my opinion, doing the lockdown until we understood exactly what it was and what it was capable of, what it was capable of, sorry, was the right decision to make at that time. Because we didn't have any other, any, we didn't have any data to suggest there was a better way to do it. So we did the best thing we could. Right, step back. Let's assess the situation. Get back to it. And obviously, that 
went on and on and on and on and on and it, it dragged out disproportionately and it, it come to like maybe four or five months into this, the whole situation that the, the figures were being quite dramatically inflated in terms of the, the death toll, the infection rate and everything else in, in the sense of they recording, they were, they were recording the COVID statistics as just on the news, you would get COVID deaths and there's a huge figure. But obviously what, what they were neglecting to add into that at the time is that they were recording deaths of died with COVID rather than died from COVID. And if you were to, if you were to contract COVID and you were, you know, you're a fit, you're a fit, healthy guy. Chances are, ninety nine percent of young, fit, healthy people, it's just going to feel like a common cold. It's not to say it's the equivalent of, but that's how it's going to feel for you, and you'd be over it fine. Why? They, why was this a battle that you felt that you wanted to fight? Because, because obviously, you're out of trouble. I understand that they shut your gym, you or trying to shut your gym, and and all that stuff as they were trying. But why did you feel like you is? this is something that you want to fight against, so to speak. Because obviously when, you, when you're when going against a narrative like the narrative that they tried to play, um, y- when, you, when you try and battle something like that, you, you, know, you know it's only going to end up one way, isn't it? Especially with someone like yourself who's already got previous, you know, and just kept his head down and done so well in business. I was, I was a perfect target, definitely. Yeah. And I, I, I did no favours by, by bringing my head above the parapet and, you know, making myself a target, and it was more so because they targeted Liverpool in the end. So the first, the first national lockdown, everybody was in the same boat. So we we closed no problem. But it wasn't until the October that they introduced the tier system. Now, a couple of weeks before the tier system, they were announcing that. Well, before it was implemented, anyway, they said they were going to bring out this tiered system, and there was going to be tier one, two, and three, and because everyone had been allowed to go back to work at this point, if you were put into a certain tier system, you were then going to be subject to, if you were in tier three, certain businesses had to close and you were then going to be given less furlough than what the existing rate was. So if you were in, they announced that Liverpool was going to be the first to be trialled under this tier three system and you were going to be given, I don't know whether it was 63% of your earnings as furlough as opposed to 70 or 80% what what it was initially. So... You know, it, it kind of have already painted the picture of hang on a minute. So, so, so lives in Liverpool are worth less than they are in the south. As you can guarantee, if it was a sudden, if if it, if it was a sudden, if it was an area in the south that was going to be put into tier three first, they'd have got the same rate of of furlough as it was before, because that's where the majority of the power and the wealth in the country is. There's no argument there. Liverpool historically has been penalised by central governments through decades and decades, and that that's not. That's not a conspiracy. There's been many, a, many a letter, many a conversation leaked. That you know they, they've always been a Liverpool's always been a target for whatever reasons. You know that's an, an entirely separate conversation. But they were bringing in tier three into Liverpool. They were going to get less furlough than what the rest of the country were getting previously. And do you think though that that some of this fight that you've gone to, because you, obviously I, I know I'm, I'm getting the I'm getting the feeling that. You want to fight for Liverpool, fight for your people, fight for fight for your city. But is any of that need to fight coming from the place of you owe this city something because you felt like you didn't do right by it in the past? Yeah, so I, I'd obviously lost when I was in when I was in the free running days. I was a really well respected person in the community. Like you know, I was and the, you wanted to earn that back. I wanted that back. And right, I've gone okay. to prison and I come out and great, I've been successful in business, but it's very easy to see someone successful in business and think, well, that, that's, 
that's not because he's trying to do well for the community. He's he's financially benefiting, and that's so easy to to get lost. If you're if you're if you're making money whilst being a good guy, it's very easy for people to go, well, you're self-serving. Yeah. And in that situation, it wasn't self-serving whatsoever. Like that was that was my opportunity to redeem to redeem myself. You know, to 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 give penance to to put myself back where I was them years previous and and regain the respect from a community that meant so much to me previously. And when that come about, the furlough situation and everything else, bearing in mind that because I was a director of a company, I wasn't, I wouldn't have got furlough. I didn't get any furlough through the whole time. So me me fighting for the furlough situation in the first place, I wasn't going to benefit from that whatsoever. I got no financial support from the government whatsoever through through the COVID thing. So there was no fi- financial benefit there. And then not just that, when they published the legislation that I took the time to read about the tier three system and what businesses were were, were demanded to close, there was no fitness and leisure centers in there whatsoever. No mention of it whatsoever. And then when Boris comes on television about four days before we're due to go into tier three, he says, right, these are the industries that are going to have to close. And he reels off this list. Health, fitness and leisure centers, gymnasiums. Hang on, I read this an hour ago. There's no mention of this whatsoever. This isn't in the legislation. This isn't legal by any means. So I had a conversation with two other gym owners who were just up the up the street from us, Chris and Thea, the only gym called Empowered. We were literally just a couple of miles down the road for us. And because we'd been encouraging this community aspect of the gyms, they're really on that, you know, that same ethos and we we banded really well. And instead of instead of adapting the mentality that the previous owner had from me of we do us, we want them to do really poorly. Like we, we swap suppliers, like how can, how, how can we do this better? What do you pay for this? Like we really help each other be better because you, you know, there's, there's, there's 8 million people that use, use gyms in the UK. Yeah. So to have this gym beef of yeah, it's just, the pie is so small. It's like, come on, like if, you, if I can help you be better and you can help me be better, we're both going to do better together. So, you know, I, I again took that, that, the parkour ethos and said, right, well, we're going to work together and there's, there's areas where I can help you. There's areas where you can help me because if anybody thinks they have the best business and there's no way to better it, Stupid. You've lost straight away. You can always be better. And whether someone's doing financially better than you or not doesn't change the fact that the chances are they there's an aspect of their business that you could adopt that's going to make yours better. And you'd be naive to think otherwise. So I had a conversation with them and their backgrounds are very similar to mine in the sense of, you know, they've been through some some serious hardships. They're from a council estate and we got talking about the conversation and we're both very passionate about Liverpool. And, and it was it was Thea's suggestion initially. She's like, well, what do you think to us just staying open? As I explained, look, the legislation states it. I've gone through it. We shouldn't be closing. It's not legal for them to close. And, and she was like, well, what do you think if we don't close? I was like, well, I'm on I'm on probation. I'm on prison license. If I stay open, I'm going to get a lot of trouble. But it's the right thing to do. You've got the financial as- aspect of it. You've got the physical and mental health aspect about it. And just the fact that it's, it's, so, it's right. So you're on probation at this point. So I go back to jail if I get in any trouble whatsoever. My license wasn't due to expire for a good another few months. But on the moral compass side of things, you've read the legislation and it's not legal. What it wasn't doing. legal, no. And, and you know, we had the conversation. I was like, look, okay, let's do it. You know, you're in, I'm in. Let's band together all the other gym owners. Let's just stay open. Let's do the right thing. Let, let's let's roll the dice. She said, okay. I said, look, well, let's make a video each for our own page. Let's put the video up tonight to say what we're going to do. Make people aware that we're doing it for the right reasons. We want to protect physical health. We want to protect mental health. We want to we want to protect the economy. We're doing it for the right reasons. The statistics that governments are publishing do not justify in any way closing our sector because we're such a large contributor to national health. 
Like we're, we're, we're a, a, a well, you keep people out of hospital by keeping them fit. We are a fundamental pillar of support to the NHS, and they want to close us amidst this pandemic. Off the back of them doing a, you know, the the, the reason we we had such a high rate of illness, and the reason we, are, as a nation, in any in, you know, whenever there's a virus or anything going around, the reason that the UK and the US have such a high rate of of serious illness is because we're, we're so overweight as a nation, and obviously, well, disease. Disease in the body only manifests with disease in the mind and disease in, 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 in how you carry yourself as a human being, doesn't it? Exactly, yeah. It can't, it can't exist in a congruent human being that's, that's, that's high energy and high vibe and, and fully, and, you know, fully complete in all areas of life. It doesn't exist. Yeah, you, you're, you're, a, if you're in poor health, if you're, if you're overweight, if you're a smoker, you know, if you don't exercise much, you're a breeding ground for, for illness. And, you know, scientifically, there's no arguing against that, you know. It, it, if you're obese, if you're obese, chances are you're going to get seriously ill if you if you come under it, and, and that that doesn't that doesn't mean to say that there's only one way to look. Or obviously, a lot of people get offended by that concept, but scientifically, you can't argue with that. I'm all I'm all for if somebody finds a particular way attractive. Or like I've got no argument with that whatsoever. Do you know what I mean? If 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 big is beautiful and that's your thing, good for you. That, that, that's fine, but it's not healthy in a scientific sense, and that, and that's okay. But. That's why we was. That's why we were in such a such a sorry state, and that's why the US were in such a sorry state. And instead of encouraging people to exercise and have better nutrition and get some some get some sunlight, get some vitamin D, and, and to keep your immune system healthy, we said, right, everyone needs to stay indoors. No one's allowed to exercise. Let's close the gyms. And while we're at it, let's do a neat out to help out and give everyone fifty percent off McDonald's. Like it's back backward logic. So this whole this whole approach that they've taken, and the politicians who are entirely scientifically illiterate pushing these policies on people that are just making the situation 10 times worse than it already is. So we, we know it's a recipe for disaster. So we said, look, we're going to do this. Let's do it. He films the video. I makes the video outside the gym. I said, look, we're, we're, we've been told we need to close uh, in two days' time. No, we've been told we need to close tomorrow. We're not going to close. And I, and I said in the video, I was like, look, they might arrest us. They might find us. We've got no idea what's going to happen, but we're staying open. We'd like your support. Spread the word. CC will stand with us and I put that video up and across Instagram, Facebook and a couple of other platforms I had millions of views within 24 hours and we had tons of support coming in from, from absolutely everywhere sorry I tell a lie now that, fir- that first video I had a couple of hundred thousand views and then the police come later that day and said look if you open tomorrow you, we're going to have to come we're going to close you down I said okay no problem you know we were respectful with the police and I said look we've got to do what we've got to do no issues and I thought you know that probably going to come they might come they're going to be later in the day open my doors eight o'clock in the morning ten past eight full squad of police so eight police officers that had come from the armed division of merseyside police why that was necessary you tell me so it was clearly it was an intimidation tactic from from day one so they came in with guns they they came in armed so they so they're from the armed division and they come in with they, they only had their tasers big big yellow things strapped to their chest so they were from the armed division but they didn't have their actual firearms with them but they'd sent the armed division of Merseyside police in numbers to say yo you've got to close your gym like, this is a civil civil matter at this point you know I mean it's not even criminal and they're sending a team of armed response units complete yeah. waste of, of resources to come and have this conversation with me this was only about quarter past eight in the morning ten past eight Nick you're going to have to close or we're going to have to give you a thousand pound fine I'm like wow this just got real really fast he said, and we can fine you every three hours. And every three hours that we fine you, the fine doubles until it reaches £10,000. And then we can issue a £10,000 fine on every three hours. And this is and this is something they've rushed through in a court of law pretty quick, isn't it? Yeah, which since has been, 
you know, they, they, they backtracked on it big time. Yeah. But the player in front of me now, they're like, Nick, we really don't want to do this. And he's off camera at this point. He said, look, we know it's nonsense. I understand your, your situation. I explained in the legislation. He's like, Nick, I know you're right, but just please don't make it harder for us. Just, just, just close. Just let us do it. Don't make us give you the final. Like, they were really nice guys. So I phoned Theo up. I was like, look, they're here now. They're going to fire me. Are we doing this? Are we in? Are we actually doing this? Because it's, it's just got real really quickly. And she's like, well, what do you think? I'm like, look, I'm in if you're in. But if we're in, we're in. Like, don't, don't pull out on me tomorrow when they come knocking at your door. Do you know what I mean? If we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And she says, we're in. 100% we're in. So I just I put the phone down. I said, look, guys, you're going to have to fire me. No disrespect to you. I know you've got to do your job. I respect what you guys do. You're just following orders. They said, yeah, Nick, look, this has come from our boss's boss's boss. We've got no say in this. We think it's absolute nonsense. But that's what we've got to do. I said, look, I'm just going to document this from my social media. I've got to take a quick video of you guys in here just to make people aware of what's going on. I said, look, I know you've got people to answer to. I said, so do yourself a favor. Do your social distancing, whatever, before I start the camera. I said, I don't want to get you in trouble. You know, because I, I knew a couple of them and they had their, they were, they were a couple of them were, were masked up and whatever else. So you couldn't see, but I could see their eyes, and I knew a couple of them personally, and they knew that I knew them. I didn't want to get them in trouble, but the main guy, the, the, the I don't even know what you call him, the guy who was in the lead of that team, I said, look, I'm going to film you, make this video. He's like, Nick, you've got to do what you've got to do. It's well within your right to film. So I filmed, I filmed these police officers with their big, big intimidating yellow tasers on the front. There's eight of them here just to come and ask me to close. So I pan round, film them, and zoom up to the sign at the back of our gym, and this is a, this is a huge... 15 foot sign it's got the people's gym written on it in big big steel letters all lit up and I go I shoot back to the house after they left and I recorded a video of myself talking about what had just happened you know the police are coming numbers there's the video this is what's happened here's the statistics this is what I've taken from the legislation I've spoken to some of the local politicians they've they completely agree with me but they said their hands are tied they can't do anything officially because Boris has said it on the telly I put that video up on Instagram and Facebook and that was the one that went really viral you're talking six seven million views within 24 hours and everybody was on it every every celebrity that you can think of in the country endorsed it all the new all the media outlets were all over it everybody was sharing it, it you know it, it it went so big so fast and we could have never predicted that and there was there was you know, we we had a couple of hecklers further in. who were like, "Oh, you've just done this for popularity or whatever else." I'm like, "How how could we possibly have predicted that? If, it, if, I, if I knew the recipe to go viral, do you not think I'd have done this three years ago? Do you know? What I mean, we had no idea what was going to happen, so it goes viral. We set up a, a petition to get it to Parliament to have the the, the the statement reversed and have the actual legislation brought in. I met with various politicians who said, "Nick, you're completely right in what you're doing. We're going to put pressure on the Prime Minister. Keep doing what you're doing." There's only so much we can say officially, but unofficially, do what you're doing. And I'm speaking to police officers at the time, like Nick, just keep going, keep going. You're making the right noise. People are starting to listen. But all, but all, but all the time, you still they're still able to arrest you at any point because you're on probation, right? Yeah, and you know this. Yeah, and if I'd just been arrested and released on bail, I'd have gone back to prison anyway. Just just for being associated with something that was naughty. So you know, I was running a very high risk of getting recalled to prison whilst I was on probation. But it was, it, it was. So what? So what? So what makes you keep wanting to march down the path? Redemption, definitely, definitely redemption. So you felt you, you did. I, I had an, I had an opportunity to show that 
I was the person that I used to be and it wasn't a financial gain thing. I just wanted to do what was right for my community and I, I, I feel really passionate about my community and I love my city and my nan and granddad are, are diehard scousers, grew up in Anfield, like they went through the hardship of the 80s in Liverpool, which was a really hard time and they tell me these tales of old and how everybody used to stand together in the city and, you know, we were we were strong and we were northern and we stuck together and that's what we did and that, you know, that's who we were as people. We stood up for each other and, and strength in numbers. We've, ne- we've never had the, the financial capacity to, to, you know, go about things in in that sense. And because you, and because you now have created that financial capacity to be able to, to do something, you want to be able to do it. Yeah, so I didn't just have a voice. I had my, my business platform and, and all of a sudden we got this media traction and everything else. I was like, this is this is my opportunity, maybe the only opportunity I'm going to get in my life to really make a difference. And I either keep running with this now or forever think, what if? Yeah. And I, I don't want to live with regret. This is, how, how many how many times in any, any in any normal person's life who's come from a council estate did you actually get a chance to change the world? Which we didn't know it was going to go to that extent by any means, but if, if you're if you're if you're in the midst of the pandemic and people are getting seriously ill and jobs are getting destroyed and the economy's getting destroyed and families are getting destroyed and you're part of an industry that enables eight million people every single day to use the gym and reduce their risk of serious illness, you know, by fifty percent. If, if you're it's if a you're, moral duty to you to, to you to have do a moral it. obligation to step up because you are impacting eight million people's lives per day. And we had that legislation reversed after putting the petition up and getting 600-odd thousand signatures on it. We took, you know, we got it taken to Parliament. I went up and met personally with uh, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House Commons, you know, and he was completely on board. He's like, Nick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to Boris as soon as you leave and I'm going to get him to bring your, your petition forward because the, the, the debates committee was postponed at the time because of COVID because they couldn't have them in the room. He's like, he'd not long lost his daughter to suicide and he said she, she was a, a really really into her fitness. It was the only thing that kept, kept her mentally sane, kept her healthy, like it was the most important thing to her. And he said, I'm behind you all the way. He said, I, I can, you know, I reeled off all the statistics. He's like, you, you, you're you completely on the money. This never should have happened. He's like, I'm going to speak to Boris and I'm going to sort this and you're going to get your debate. I promise you, you're going to get your debate. And I thought, he's a politician. He's just telling me what I want to hear. That's what politicians do. And within, I don't know if it was that same evening or the second morning, we got a phone call to say, right, your, your petition's Monday. It's been fast-tracked for what would have been months. You're having it on Monday, and there's been 16 MPs selected at random to sit this petition, sit in Parliament and debate your petition, and every single MP that was in attendance was in favour of, of what we did. And eventually we had the legislation reversed. Obviously a lot happened between point A and point B, and we got a lot of commercial back in. You know, we had, when it become apparent that we were get really getting some traction, you had the big boys got on board. No, Grenade really, really got on board with me. They, they were the they, Grenade were the first that stepped up, and this is why I've got so much loyalty to Grenade is because they stepped up before it was obvious that we were going to win. So they took a gamble. They, 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 they took a PR gamble of right, we're going to stand with this because we believe in it, not because it's going to win. Yeah, I think, I think, I think it, it was probably Alan as a person standing with you rather than Grenade, Grenade as a business as, as a start. Because I bet I would have, I'd have hazarded a guess that Grenade as a business, the people underneath probably wouldn't have wanted to go with that yeah because that could be a pr disaster an absolute recipe for disaster yeah and 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 because and because at the end of the day right even though you turned your life around 
the 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 media can spin it as you're back in a you're back in a former criminal. Yeah, an ex I mean? an ex criminal breaking the law. People are dying from COVID. Yeah. Commercial brand gets on board. They're killing people. Yeah, you can see how that very quickly could have could have could have ended up really bad. But because of the way that I was articulating myself on the news, and it wasn't I wasn't anti COVID. I wasn't a COVID denier. I wasn't pushing conspiracies. I was just saying, look, here's the statistics. Yeah, this is what the Office oh. for National Statistics are putting forward. This is what the World Health Organization are putting out. This is what the NHS have said. This is what the legislation says. Something's missing. Do the math. Yeah, this this isn't my data. This is this is government's own data, and it's it's there in black and white. You don't need a conspiracy to know that them bringing in this legi- this legislation and trying to enforce these rules are wrong. You can just use their own data against them to trip them up in their own mess. And whether that was deliberate or whether that was just incompetence or not, it doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter was the data didn't support the decision they were making. So Grenade come on board, they backed us so, so hard. And then it very quickly became apparent that, look, this is getting traction. And we were everywhere. Like I, I, I had a, I had the New York Times at the gym. I was on CNN. Like we'd done absolutely everything, Sky, ITV. Like it was nonstop, back to back, it, every it, single day. Because this case, once proven, could be could set a precedent worldwide for other countries to be able to negotiate these things And as it well. did, and it was a domino effect. And up until this point, nobody had really stood up to any of the narrative whatsoever, not, not, not to that extent in terms of the exposure it got. And that was the important thing, was the exposure it got. Was it made other people conscious to the fact of questioning it? It's not to say everything that they're doing is wrong or that there's some big plot behind it, but you are entitled. We live in a democratic society and you are entitled to question the decisions that are getting made. And if the data doesn't check out, it should be changed. And and that's, we got so so stuck in this lane of, well, we've made a decision, we have to stand by it or we look stupid. No, you, you make a decision and if something comes, if something if, arises. If, if the data changes or the, or, or the, or the you know, you, you can clearly see that the decision wasn't made using the, using every everything that you could have at your disposal at the time, then you've got to change the decision predicated on the new information. And that was the danger of it being so politicised and polarised, is that if, and don't get me wrong, I'm I'm left-leaning with my politics, but I didn't agree with a lot of what Labour did during the pandemic, and they forced a lot of things to happen that really shouldn't have happened. And if the Conservatives come forward and said, right, we're going to make this decision, and if they'd have backtracked on that decision... Labour would have attacked them and said, oh, you've, you've killed people and doing this, that and the other. And it should have been, no, I'm going to admit, the, the whole left and right thing shouldn't matter at this yeah, point. Yeah, because it, it's just like, Lives this, are is, at risk. this is the data, this is the outcome. The data and the outcome don't match in this instance, it's clear. It doesn't have to involve politics, really. I mean, it did because obviously of what you were fighting, but when you actually break it down... It wasn't a social issue. It's not really about politics or whether you agree with this side or that side. It's just literally like, it's just stupid, basically. It was statistics and risk management, and that's all that should have mattered, and it wasn't. It's just, just the the politics, party politics made the pandemic what it was. Party politics made it a pandemic. Because didn't Alan put his tank outside Parliament? Parliament? (laughs) Yeah, bright orange tank. And again, you can see how how that went. Campaign started by ex-gang-affiliated con from liverpool who's yeah. now breaking the law grenade yeah. get on board and yeah. put a, a and put a, 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 and put a, a military ta- a, mili- a military vi- a former british military vehicle painted orange with grenade logo on it yeah. and slap it outside parliament point, point in the parliament yeah it so ca- yeah mental big respect for them guys and, I, and i'll i'll always have that respect for them they're, they're a fantastic team and then once again traction we got everybody else on board like jim shot come on board pure jim come on board you know we got all the big hitters and i've gone from being this 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 guy who's got this little gym in the middle of nowhere to having zooms and meetings with ceos of multi-billion dollar companies it's, asking it's, how they can help and i'm like wow it's it's a, it's amazing because like knowing jim shark and knowing how they move 
from a PR point of view, for them to back you in this was that was a massive, massive. It was huge, yeah. And I, and I had a long conversation with with Ben and Noel, and they'd just come off the back of of some backlash from the BLM movement, and they they'd done what they thought was the right thing, and that had been misconstrued and twisted on them and made you know it, it had a little bit of backlash from it and they, they they were just trying to do the right thing do you know what I mean so they were a little bit scarred at that point of hang on even if we're trying to do the right thing what if people misinterpret what we're doing and we end up with a PR backlash which is which is sad really because it prevents big brands from doing what they know is the right thing to do because people like to twist words yeah so it was a big risk for them to even take a call for me and I had about an hour's conversation with Ben and Noel and obviously Jim Shark's worth probably the best part of two billion dollars now and they've pounds, it, I reckon. Maybe even yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. it's climbed even more now. Yeah. yeah, and they've they've given an hour of their time to me, and I, I mean, I'm a small fry, and I I I could consider my time worth thousands by the hour. So for somebody like Ben and Noel to have a conversation with me, and I, and I'm, obviously Ben's phone's on the table whilst we we're on Zoom, and it's going off every three minutes. Every, you know what I mean? I'm like these guys. These guys have made time for me, and then yeah. I've got the chi- the chief uh, chief one of the chief officers of Pure Gym on the phone to me saying, Nick, look. We're completely behind you, and you know you start to get traction. Look, you know we put some money in your don- in your donation fund, and it's only so much that we can say personally. But I just want to say from us, like, look, we're, we're behind you so much. You're doing the right thing, and and the benefit of you you th- these guys backing you is they're all gym brands. They're all they're all that they all do they all do more money as well when when the gyms are open than when they're closed. Like, is, yeah, it, yeah, it, completely. It, and it, it, it's 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 a commercial as as much as it is a community backing thing. It's a commercial. It's a commercially viable thing is, as yeah. well. Yeah, and, and prior to that, and I think we unified the industry for that period of time. When before that, it was very much each, you know, every man for himself. Because, because you know. I, I, I remember gym owners in Australia that were getting shut down in Melbourne and Sydney, and that were were even looking at your content and seeing and, and fighting predicated on that. Yeah, because we, we we did a couple of Australian news channels. Yeah, we did, we did American. I did Russia Today about three times. Like this was worldwide, and it, and it set the precedent for it. And the unification that come from that, I was like, look, we are the health and fitness industry. This is a pandemic. Yeah, you need, if you there's need, any time you need, you need us, you need you need it now. Yeah, we're, like we're your guy yeah, right yeah, now. Do yeah. you know what I mean? You need <laughs> us. This, this, if there's ever going to be a time you yeah. need us, it's now. Yeah. And, and prior to that, it was very much like Pure Gym did its thing, Total Fitness did its thing. You know, my protein was there, but as soon as you over br- there, you kind of as soon as you brought it, as soon as you, because you were the independent guy, see. Gymshark could never back Pure Gym. Pure Gym could never back Gymshark. But because you're the independent gym owner, because you're the independent guy, the the small guy getting attacked by the, by everyone else, that's why the community got behind you. And as soon as the community gets behind you, it's like, well, now commercial now, entities. Now, now the commercial entities can enter because the community's backing you. Yeah. So it kind of it kind of it, it it's, it's just one big. Um, it just organically it worked. It was perfect. The yeah. recipe was there, and that, that's what the CMO of Pure Gym said to me. He's like, "Nick, this couldn't have been us. We we couldn't have done this. There's too much bureaucracy and everything else. And we're we're a commercial entity. If we if we'd have done this, it just looks like we're self serving from a financial perspective. It had to be somebody like you, and that was so empowering to have the, these these mega companies, these these titans of the industry, all say, look, you're our guy, and it needed to be somebody like you to do it.'" Not, not specific to me as a person, but somebody who's in your situation, who's an independent, who's pushing the message in the right direction of, look, let's just talk statistics here. Because I went, I, like, I, I've done so many bouts on the news and, and I, they tried to trip me up so many times. And like uh, Sky in particular, I've done about five or six bouts with Sky and the presenters would be like, don't you care that people are dying? Yeah. They try and demonize me and I'm did, like... Did they ever bring up your past? They didn't because they weren't, they weren't aware at that point. 
because I'd had because I'd done so well for myself, I'd contacted the newspapers that had my old articles up and said, "Look, I'm doing really well in my life. This is this is being detrimental to Cause, me." Because let's not forget, at this point, in terms of business, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you've come out of prison, you've took a loan out for half the gym, you've got to pay the other half off over time. So you do that just just so that everyone has clarity here. Then you use the money from that gym. You buy you buy your house outright. You buy other other commercial properties that 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 house gyms or set up other gyms. So now you've got three gyms. You, you, you've t- you've turned your life around inside three or four years to go from prison to about two million pound plus net worth in terms of like assets all paid off. Right. That's correct. Yeah. Now that from someone who's had to go through let's let's not beat around the bush here like not the best parenthood because your mum didn't know to be having to experience abuse at the level you did to having to find themselves and and then learn about themselves through free running to then fall off the wagon and forget who they are predicated on not dealing with the darkness within themselves at the time to then come out and rise like a phoenix like that and and kind of from all these lessons, if you'd never served them, you'd never be where you are kind of thing. It's, it's, it's a pretty beautiful journey when you wrap it up into a package and, and present it to yourself. Like yeah. you, sh- you should be proud of yourself for everything you've done, mate, like on a serious level, to come back from that. I'm being serious when I say that. It, it's been it's been an adventure, man. And it, it, it's like the, the, the COVID thing really gave me a huge opportunity to go on from, to go on from there and just do better and better. And the commercial sector, the commercial success that come with the exposure that I got from COVID enabled me to pursue other avenues where I could help more people. And obviously I, I, there's no denying I done well financially from COVID because of the exposure, but that was never the intention. But what I've done since with the exposure that that got me, you know, I've been able to give back in ways that I I never could before. And that, that, you know, what are some of the things you've done to give back? You know, we've done a, we've done a ton of, 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 community projects and, and charity work that we've done we've done a lot with we've done a lot with mental health and grenade done a lot with us on, on projects that we've run where we've tried to incentivize people to to take time to do their physical exercise to do their running to concentrate on their mental health to do their meditation and stuff like that and i've done a lot of work with a lot of medical doctors a lot of psychiatrists and stuff like because everybody wanted a part of the exposure I can articulate myself well, but I don't have a degree in psychology, you know, I, yeah. you know, and, I, and I'm not naive to that. Do you know what I mean? I'm not necessarily the most qualified guy, but I'm good at networking and I'm good at putting people together and I'm good at articulating the information that I do have access to. So for me to bring people on board who are more specified in their field, you know, it, it, it really enabled me to get a more positive message out there and, and, and demonstrate to people that there are better things to focus on and there are better ways to live and healthier ways to live and, through my clothing brand, we've done we done a lot of give back work over Christmas and stuff like that. Like we've done a we done a, a a big thing over the Christmas. I think this was twenty twenty one with the brand where we done like a we sold everything at less than cost. So this is this is we gone back into lockdown at this point and everybody gone back down to furlough and and you know we, we, we used, I remember the financial the financial times had reported it as we just fallen into a, a, the back end of a double dip recession. So everyone was struggling financially. I thought you know what 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 is it we can what's the best thing that we can do within my, you know, capacity and my, my, my business reach? What can we do? And I thought, well, I've got the clothing brand and the clothing brand was doing really, really well at the time because of the exposure. I thought, well, can we afford to take a loss on every single sale on the run up to Christmas to make sure that people have the opportunity to buy their partners or the, you know, some other people, something that's really cheap. And, and that's one of the only ways that we could give back. So we launched this, this project over Christmas, we call it the give back project. And it was kind of in the first week of December 
And it was like an 85, 90% sale and everything. So we took a loss on every single item. And the message that we put out there, and, and this, this was adopted so well, and it was so hard to manage. We weren't expecting it to do so well. It was like, look, we're going to take a loss on every single item, but we want to make sure that because everyone's in such a difficult state financially, and obviously most of my audience is, is, is fitness industry, we're going to give you the opportunity to buy everything. We're going to take a loss on everything to enable you to buy something for your loved ones that's, that's going to cost you next to nothing, but at least you'll have something to, extra to give at Christmas. So we launched, we launched this sale, and as I say, we took a loss on everything, and there was thousands, thousands and thousands of sales. It was taken up so well. And I think the message behind it is what made it go out so well. And don't get me wrong, we, we lost an absolute fortune. But what, 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 can, what did you lose? I mean, you, you're talking thousands and thousands of orders, and each item that we were selling, we were probably losing three, four pounds on each item, and each order probably had four or five items in it. So you're probably losing, I don't know what, 30, 30 pounds an order. Thousands of orders. So you're talking 30, 40 grand. Yeah. So, so you know, that that's dumped in one. And then there's a picture on my Instagram of me lying in the orders. Thousands of orders across, like, deep, like a sea of orders of me star fishing in there. We were really proud of it, too. I mean, it was it was, it was was a really good opportunity to do that. And then, obviously, in the in the, the next lockdown that came, the next not national lockdown, we couldn't stay open because it was a national lockdown. In the tier system, the only person that could have been fined was me. But in the national lockdown... All my members could have been given ten thousand pound fines as well. So I said, "Look, we can't. I can't subject my members to ten thousand pound fines." I said, "Look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to give out every piece of equipment that we've got. No charge, no deposit, no nothing, no contract to say you're going to bring it back." With the people's gym, and we've got good rapport with our community, and I trust you, and I hope at this point you trust me. So we gave away all the equipment in the gym, like well over a hundred thousand pounds worth of kit. Treadmills went, rowers went, all the dumbbells went, all the barbells, absolutely everything we had went. Literally just on a list of paper of a member would come in and say, oh, well, I'd like this and this. And I mean, we divided it across the members and our, the gym was bare. The gym was completely empty. We give away absolutely everything. Whereas, you know, the, the commercial gyms boarded their windows up, give nothing away, yeah, 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 didn't yeah, yeah. communicate with their members. And I said, look, I will give you everything that did, I've possibly got to give. Did it all come back? Every single piece, spotless. Not a single piece went missing. Nothing. Not so really? much. Not so all much. in all in mint condition. Yeah. Not so much as a fi- not so much as a five kilo plate went missing. Everything come back because that that's that that's the difference between what we are as an independent community based gym. We really push that message in a commercial gym. Like if a commercial gym were to give it all out, it would never come back. It would never come back because there's no there's no rapport no there whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing, and they respected us for what we did, and we give all that away. And the the Guardian got in touch, and they wanted to cover that. They were like, Nick, what you've done is is phenomenal. What you've done for mental health is phenomenal. Like we really want to. You know, we want to promote what you're doing to get other people to do it. And I put it out there. And a lot of other gyms seen what we were doing and thought, well, we're going to try and do something similar. Do you know what I mean? And the fact that everything come back said to me, I'm close to regaining the position that I had in the community all them years ago, and I'm, I'm on the right path. And it was shortly after that that Brian Rose, who was then about to run for London Mayor, asked me if I'd come on board with uh, to be his health and well-being advisor, who has campaigned to be London Mayor now, it was obviously Sadiq Khan retained his seat, but had Brian gone on to win London Mayor, had he gone on to become London Mayor, I'd have been the health and wellbeing advisor to the 8 million people in London City, do you know what I mean? And to go yeah, from this kid yeah, from the yeah. council estate to being so close to being the health and wellbeing advisor to the biggest you know, city in the country, the capital city, like that was like, wow, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm doing something right. And again, I had a couple of hecklers, oh, you know, you're not, you're not the most qualified or whatever else. I'm like, hang on a minute, you've got to, You've got a health secretary with no degree in health. You've got a well. If you look at most of the health secretaries, without being nasty about the health secretaries, if you look at most of them, they're most of them are fat anyway. 
Like to be honest, so not, not there's not many health secretaries I know that are qualified at being a health secretary. They're not, and that's not the idea. The idea is that you're able to receive information from those who are most qualified, qualified, and make it and make it understandable to 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 not only the government but also to the to the people that are listening out there as well. Yeah, it's an ability to articulate information that you receive from those who are those who are specialized in them industries may not particularly have the best vocal skills to, to, yeah, to, to articulate. That. Exactly. Yeah. And that is what someone in that position is meant to do. So I've never claimed to be, Oh, I'm the all knowing. I've got a PhD in nutrition or biology or yeah. whatever else. Look, I'm just, I'm just a guy that is comfortable speaking on air in high pressure situations. You put me on the news. doesn't bother me one bit. And, that, and that's, that's the difference between maybe someone who, who's hyper qualified in that area, but you put them on the news in front of, Put them on Sky World in front in front of thirty, forty, fifty million people, and they're gonna they're gonna wilt. Exactly, yeah. You know, we we play to our strengths, and I would never claim to be the most qualified person in there, and and that's and that's okay. And you know that that's how the journey went, and then shortly off the back of that is when I took my next trip to HMP. Very, very, very surprisingly, and that's that was June two thousand and twenty one. So that's bringing us closer to where we are today. And that was probably the hardest thing I've ever endured in my entire life. Way, way, way darker than the first time I went to jail. Way darker. Than because the- because you thought at this point you've dug yourself out of all this stuff. You've, you've broken the pattern that you were sitting in. I broke the cycle, yeah. I, I've, I've, everything that I was, every everything, the trajectory of my life, of where I was when I was a kid, and where I was when I went into that, that other world, it was only going one place. And, you know, at this point, I'd, I'd broke the cycle. Like, my, I've gone from associating with gang members to now I'm mixing, I'm having dinner with politicians and PhDs and celebrities, and I'm, I'm making a difference in the world. And, you know, I'm being asked to advocate for mental health in Parliament, and, you know, I'm being asked to be the health and wellbeing advisor potentially to London City. I thought, I'm, I'm really doing some good in the world, and the good that I'm putting into the world is coming back to me, and I, I'm in a really good place, and I've done everything right, and, you know, I, I've rehabilitated, and I'm pushing the right message, and, I, and I'm, 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 you know, I'm being a, the best person that I can possibly be, and I was in such a such a good place and such a happy place that the last thing that I was expecting was something from half a decade earlier to to come knocking at my door and to be yanked away for you know a, 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 a silly moment in the past. And it was June June 2021 when we got a knock at the door, and I'd initially thought it was just. A postman, some of the missus had ordered more clothes from ASOS or whatever, whatever she does to get us harassed at eight o'clock in the morning weekly. Um, so I'm nudging here to go and get the door. It's not going to be for me because I just ordered my stuff to the gym. I said, go and get the door. It's, it's for you. And I'm trying to get back to sleep. My face mask on and my hair everywhere. I'm like, just go on, answer the door. He goes down, opens the door and I just hear, please, 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 please. What now? COVID again. Like what now? Do you know what I mean? Because I'd, I'd had so many interactions with police at this point. Like even through, even through the tiered system, we were getting fifth, like between ten and fifteen visits from the police every single day, because they were being called out and told by their boss, "You've got to go and check the gym again. We think it's open. You've got to go and check the gym again. We think it's open." And at this point, we closed the front door. And we had a secret back door that people were using the, jo- the door in just to avoid the fines. And the, the police knew what they were doing. And the police didn't care. They just had to do their job and come and check. And it got to the point where they'd come and they'd know where the back door was and they'd come to the back door and they'd watch them on the cameras because at this point I'd hired extra staff just to watch the cameras. And the idea was if you were in there training, somebody would be watching the cameras, somebody would be working the till. 
And if you've seen a police car pull up, because it's like a fortress, there's no windows on the ground floor, and you can't you can't look in, and there's only two lanes either side of it. So we we had the place; it was, it was literally like a fortress. So as yeah. soon as a police car pulls up, pull the music down. Everyone to pause. So you mid set, you pause. The police are outside. They're going to be there a few minutes. Just pause. And at this point, I even had police training in the gym. So we had specialist police from like terrorist <laughs> units and all sorts training in the gym, off duty. Yeah. Other police outside because they, they they knew it was nonsense. Do you know what I mean? They, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah. They, they didn't agree with it whatsoever. They needed to. They're dealing with they just real, need to tick boxes. Yeah. And the police that are in there, they're dealing with real crime every day, like actual crime. And they need that outlet to come and, you know, protect their own mental health so they're able to save the community. So they know it's nonsense. Do you know what I mean? And it, it, it was known between them all what was going on. And they come and they touch the back door and look up at the camera and go, we're going. We're leaving now. Just to give us the nod that they were going. And there's, there's like, I remember, I remember a time, and I was only telling a story last week that, they'd only ever come for a couple of minutes and they'd check and they'd leave and they'd just do their due diligence. And there was a time when the, the police car was sat over the road from the gym and it looked like they were lingering and they were waiting for like 10, 15 minutes. I thought, these aren't just checking. They're looking for trouble now. This is getting antagonistic. And I was watching the cameras from home and the staff were in there like, look, Nick, they're not going. So I drove up. I'm only like 60 seconds from the gym. And I jumped out the car. And because I, I was a bit antagonized, because I thought they were waiting, I pulled my phone out of my pocket. And bearing in mind, every video I'm releasing at the time is getting millions of views. So they were very, very aware so you, of that. So has your ego got involved now? Maybe a little bit at that point there, yeah. Because I, I knew the power I had at the time. Anything yeah. that I filmed, like at this, po- at this point, I had, the, like I had the power to bully politicians on Instagram. And my ego did play into, come into play a little bit, like the sports minister. Stuff like, the sports minister I directed people to send their frustration towards him about what was going on in the industry to the point where he had to remove his Twitter and Instagram because he was getting that much, you know, that many messages and all that many comments on his posts. And that happened with with a few different companies and politicians. And that that's, that social media is powerful, really powerful. And, it, you know, at that point it was, it was, you know, it, it was, it was a weapon that we had. And as soon as I pull my camera out, that's the, that's the, that's the most powerful weapon. That's, that's, that's worth more than what your gun is. This is, is this, this why they were. Is this why they were raiding your house? No, no, no. This, this. So this, this was. Sorry, yeah, I've, I've gone off on a tangent here. But now, just to finish this story, I pulled my camera out and I've gone to the police car and I'm like, "Why are you still here? You know, you're waiting for a problem now. This isn't fair." And he just put Nick, put the camera down, put the camera down, put the camera down, put the camera in my pocket, and he's like, "Look, look, look! We're, I promise you, we're not waiting for trouble." And he lifts his phone up to me. He's like, "We're just ordering off Just Eat." That's the only reason we're still sat here and we're going to go straight away. Like, they didn't want any hassle. They were, they were, they were cool guys. So I thought this is just going to be... So when they come knocking at the door, June, July 21, I thought it's going to be another COVID thing. So they come in the bedroom and I'm like, what What now? Come on, guys, give me a break. You know what I mean? COVID's kind of... We're kind of past that now. What do you, what do you want? They've got an arrest warrant. What for? Oh, we, don't, we can't tell you what for. It's from Jersey Police. I said, I haven't spoke to anybody from Jersey for years. I said, there must be a mistake here. He's like, well, we don't know any further information. We've just been told to come and arrest you and Jersey police are going to come and get you. And so, thinking, this, this yeah, so this is an old, yeah. So this ended thing. Yeah. Yeah. So this, 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 this is years on. This is something I am guilty of, by the way, which I'll get to, but this, this is years on. I'm like, I haven't spoke to, I haven't even spoke to anyone in a friendly capacity from Jersey in like three, four years. Now I'm like, what could this possibly be? You've also served time as well. Yeah. 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 So that, no, so this, it's like slightly more complicated than that. So I, I'm, I'm thinking someone's threw my name in a conversation here that I've got nothing to do with. I thought it's just a mistake. It's going to be no issues. And they searched the house. They raided the house. They raided the gym. And obviously they didn't find anything because I've not been involved in that life for over half a decade at this point. And I was like, what's going on? They can't tell you. I can't tell you. So Jersey, please come and get me the next day. And I'm on the plane going back to Jersey with them. 
and and I'm like, what, what's going on? Oh, we can't tell you. You'll have to wait till you get there and meet the head of customs. I really don't understand what's going on here. It's got to be a mistake. And they congratulate me on the plane about everything I've done. We've seen you in the newspaper, Nick, a few weeks ago because the, the Jersey Evening Post had just ran a big spread on me. And, oh, you're doing so well for yourself, Nick. Yeah, but yeah. I said, this is so bizarre. And I get to Jersey and I land in the airport and I meet the head of customs. And he said, right, Nick, this is the situation. He said, did you facilitate a message between a, a, an Anthony Dryden and one of my other mates from Liverpool in 2018? This was after I got out of jail the first time. And I just said, yeah. I knew straight away what he was talking about. So I said I did. And what, what had happened was... So after you got out this of jail... Is, this is after I got out now. So a friend that I met... I say a friend. He, he, he was my... He was one of my... Uh, he was on the wing with me in Jersey. Nice guy. Not 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 gangster type or anything. Someone who sold a little bit of weed to his union mates just to fund his own habits. Really nice, timid guy. Not not in that way inclined at all. And he'd say, he contacted me and said, look, Nick, I normally get my I normally get my weed off the dark web, but the guy I get it off, his account's disappeared, and I'm a little bit concerned about getting it. He's like, can you put me in touch with anyone? I'm like, and bearing in mind the police have got this transcript. I'm like, mate, I've not been involved in that game in years. Like, I, you know, so, so your text message to put this guy in touch with someone else for weed? Yeah, this, this is what got me. And, and they have these transcripts, and this is what really bothered me. So the transcripts literally read, it's like, mate, I'm retired from all this. Like, I haven't done, I haven't, I haven't been involved in this world in, in years. And they've got this in black and white. This was in my evidence bundle. Like, and and he, he's persistent, persistent. I said, look, I'll put you in touch with somebody. I said, but I want nothing to do with that. Because obviously my, my my personal opinion on cannabis is is very different to what it is on ecstasy and cocaine and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm a strong, I'm a strong believer in the medical capacity of, of, of cannabis to an extent. So, you know, that's not something that I completely frown upon. I was like, look, I'll put you in touch with someone, but I want nothing else to do with it. Okay. So I speak to, speak to my mate in Liverpool. I said, look, will you, will you help him out? He only, only wants, he only wants to be sorted out once or twice. He said, it's no, you know, what, do you mind? It's like, I'm not speaking to him directly. So, cause I don't know him. You went to jail in Jersey. I don't know who he is. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, okay. So, you so I left it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I didn't. I didn't say anything. He pops up another week later. He's like, "Oh, please, mate. I, I, I'm, you know, can you just sort me out just this once." I said, "Oh." So, so I've sat in the middle of. I've sat in the middle of this chain for a bit of cannabis twice, two importations, and it's literally he. He's told me his address, and I passed it to this guy, and they've sorted it between them, and that was the extent of it. And it's got to the third time, and he's asked me for a third time. I said, "This isn't what you asked me for, mate. You asked me for a one-off, mm. and now you're asking me to to continuously be involved." I said, "Look." So I said to the other fellow, I was like, look, you, you, either, you either deal with each other directly or you don't at all. I'm not sitting in the middle. I've got way too much to lose now. I've got a business and everything else. And they've got this in black and white. I mean, I'm guilty of putting them in touch in the first place. I said, but look, I'm completely out of this. So this was May 2018. I said, look, you see the deal with each other directly. Well, that's the end of it. This is me. My involvement's finished here. That's the last I ever heard of it. This is May 2018. So now we skip forward to July 2021, three years later. What had happened... In the interim, is that the guy in Jersey had then got arrested a year later, importing from Poland or something, only small quantities by the kilo. It's amazing how criminal life just follows you, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a, it's like a disease. And and he got himself arrested, and they they'd secured his phone, taken his phone for analysis, and he'd spoken to me on an app called Signal. And as much as he thought he'd deleted his messages off Signal, they'd backed up to the iCloud first, then he deleted Signal. And then when they've analyzed his phone, they've gone into his iCloud and brought the text messages down and then linked me to it. And what had then happened was, because it was such a small quantity of can cannabis that they'd exchanged, uh, I say small, still on a commercial scale, it was a couple of kilo at that point, which it was can it was pollen. So it wasn't even like 
but it wasn't even like the grassy stuff. It was it was the the harder slaty type stuff. It's still high, still a high quality grade, but it's not. The price isn't the same. It's less. So you're talking a couple of grand's worth of weed in any ordinary capacity. It's not even worth the police's time. Like a, a friend of mine, well, the brother of a friend of mine got caught with the same quantity about six months ago by the police. They just give him a caution because it's just not worth their hassle. So they'd sat on this evidence for years, about two and a half years at this point, and done nothing with it whatsoever because it just wasn't worth so the hassle. So what was the reason as it coming out that time? Well, so they'd sat on it because it wasn't worth pursuing because it was such a small quantity of cannabis. And then off the back of COVID and all the exposure that I got, the Jersey Evening Post approached me and said, look, Nick, we want to do a we want to do an article on your rehabilitation because we're, we're absolutely astounded by what you've achieved and you've done so much and we really want to cover your whole journey. I said, great, if I can put a positive message out there and show people that you know you can come out and you can then go on to do something positive, you don't have to be stuck in that cycle. I said, I'm all for that. I said, that's, that's everything that I'm about right now. Let's do it. So they run this huge, huge article on me that spanned two days and on the Monday they ran with this big two-pager right at the start of the... Uh, right at the start of the the newspaper, and it was the the left side read from free runner, and then the second page went uh, to drug runner. So it was from free, from free runner to drug runner. This was on a two page spread released on the Monday to be continued. And on the Tuesday, they run with from prison inmate to community hero. So they've listed in there that I've made front page of the New York Times, been nominated for an MBE, I've done all this charity work, won all these community awards. I've got this business now, and I'm doing really well for myself. I'm commercially successful. And then it wasn't until later on when I received my court files that it just so turns out that just weeks after that article was released, that's when they kickstarted the investigation again. So before that, it wasn't worth them bothering with. But once they seen that I'd been successful and I was doing well with myself, they thought Mm -hmm. it's an opportunity to make an example of someone, which to me is backwards because they had in black and white that I was well done with that game and I'd gone on to do all this positive stuff and all this charity work and they still thought, let's make an example out of him. Rather than yeah. thinking, let's let him be the good example. Let's bring him down off his high horse and make an example out of him because it'll make us look How good. long did you get? They gave me three years for something that you would ordinarily have got a caution for. So that's the highest That's the highest and, charge. And that's And that's because of previous convictions, isn't it? No. So they gave me the highest, they gave me the largest quantity of time for that amount of drugs that's ever been seen in Jersey court by at least twice the amount. So ordinary, in any ordinary capacity for that, even if you were to get hit with the book with previous and everything else, you'd be looking at about 12 months, maximum, absolute maximum. I got three years. What do, what do you think, what do you think the message is in that? From them? No, in terms of like the energy around that. The, I, I took a risk in putting myself out there. And what, what I thought, the my assumption was that the risk was that I was on prison license and I ran the risk of being recalled from prison from doing what I did in COVID. But the reality is I put myself on the map to the extent that I made myself so well known that it was then worth them coming after me for something that wasn't beforehand. Yeah. So that was the cost of everything that had happened previously in the run-up to that. And they the, the worst part about it was... I lost three really big deals when I got arrested for that because of the misrepresentation of the case in the press. And when I first got arrested, we had a deal going through for the clothing brand with JD Sports and they were going to put us in one store in London, one store in the North, and they were going to do a sample order of like a couple of hundred grand or something. So the assumption was that the contract over the year probably be worth a couple of million across their stores. And this was like, you know, huge, huge for the brand. It done really well, but to be, to be in JD was like, 
you know, the brand's media. That's, you know, it's a different level. So that was one of a few deals we had going on. I was in the process of opening my, my second gym. I was in the middle of, uh, well, I was right, right next to closing the purchase of the commercial property that my first gym resides in. I was buying the whole building for that as well as. And then when I got arrested, the press, instead of saying that I'd been arrested for something from nearly four years previous, and it was, you know, it was an old charge and it was cannabis, they ran with just my name, said that I'd been arrested on suspicion of important drugs, no reference to the dates, no context, no nothing, and that I'd also been arrested for money laundering which I was never charged with. And th- this is what really caused me problems now. And this is something that I really tried to reiterate over and over since I got out because it's important that people understand what it actually means. My charges were conspiracy to import cannabis for putting the two guys together and the removal of criminal property. And the removal of criminal property is, say, for example, I've got a, I've got £20 worth of cannabis in my hand and I give you that and you give me a £20 note. That £20 note, me taking it from you, is removal of criminal property doesn't matter what the quantity is, that I have just removed criminal property because this is a criminal product. That just happens to fall under the Money Laundering Act. So the Money Laundering Act has loads of sub-laws, one of which is the removal of criminal property. But if you're a commercial entity and somebody says, I mean, even if you're sort of somebody on the streets, if somebody says to you, money laundering, the assumption is that you're taking lumps of cash and washing it through a business. So that then painted the picture that everything that I had was just a front for this illegal empire. And of course, all the good stuff he done gets wiped away again. Exactly, yeah. For something that was, was was a complete fabrication. I was never arrested for money laundering and a forensic accountant went through every single bank account that I have and there was nothing on me whatsoever. Every single transaction I've ever made, nothing whatsoever. But try explaining to a commercial entity, oh no, the press have got it completely wrong. This is what really happened. They're not, they're not going to take because, the risk. Because obviously you've got previous... So there's precedent, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, of course, Nick, yeah, of course. So it wasn't until so I got out that I could actually say, look, here's the paperwork, here's what really happened at this at that point. So it's too late. Did all the did all the gym sharks, the grenades, and everyone have to pull out? Well, obviously, I wasn't with I wasn't with Jim Shark. I was only with Grenade, and Grenade supported me. And I, I spoke to Al via a family member on the phone. I didn't I didn't speak to him directly, and he said, look, tell Nick we support him completely. Um. You know, if he gets community service, which he should do, ask him if he can do a grenade, tongue in cheek. You know, because obviously that that and that's where I thought it was going. I thought I'm getting community service at an absolute max here, and I had references from doctors, politicians, like you name it, top CEOs. My references in court. My, my I had the I had the best lawyer on the whole island, the, the most prestigious lawyer on the island. And it cost me a fortune, it cost me about sixty thousand pounds just in legal fees. And he was he's the most prestigious lawyer on the island. He said, Nick, in, in my 30, 40 year career, I've never seen anything like this in my life in terms of I've never seen mitigation like yours. I've never seen anybody who's done all the positive stuff that you've done. And I've also never seen anybody get hit with the book so hard and get stitched up so badly. He said, you've clearly upset somebody quite senior. He said, because I've never seen anything like this. And he said, and I've dealt with every case that you could possibly imagine. I've never seen anything like it. Similar, similar to what maybe an Andrew Tate's done in this current environment. Potentially, yeah. Like it... <laughs> Once you make so much noise, you know, once you give them the opportunity, and and I can't, I, I can't completely cry about it because I was still guilty of putting them two people together. If I'd never have done that, I wouldn't have given them the opportunity to hit me with the book. I, th- I think ultimately, and what the been, what's been the theme throughout this whole podcast is you, you you get to pick whatever reality you create in your life, right? And 
and every 1% that you put in every element of that manifests in some way in the future. It, yeah. it, 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 and that 1% that day when you come out of jail and you think you're just connected to people by text message for a few of these, what you term as little deals, but most people in, in the world would consider quite a large amount of drugs. That's facilitated this thing happening, which has given you another life lesson. Yeah. Uh, you know, a life lesson that perhaps you might think you didn't need it, but you just needed to, because if, if, if that little lesson hadn't come, maybe you'd have thought, oh, I'll connect this. And then someone's done five kilos of cocaine because you connect that person, that person. And next thing you know, you're, you're doing 10 years for some, for connecting someone. So the, I just think there's a lot of lessons in it. A lot of, a lot of things that probably had to happen. And I think most people can see from, from knowing you myself and, and, and from the things that you've done, I, I can see the, trajectory of the way that you took your life in a more positive route and the things that you're doing even now and everything you're trying to build in a business sense has come on fucking no end mate so i commend you for for that man and everything you're doing but i want to know right if there's one piece of information one one key fucking thing if you, you had to check out the planet tomorrow and you could just leave this audience with one piece of advice business mindset um from everything you've been through on a personal level what would that piece of advice be? Networking association takes, takes me back every time. Like I, my position on that is is never going to change. I don't think. I think your association and your network is absolutely everything. I think the people that you keep around you, the people that you associate with, the people that you give your time to, give your energy to, and the people whose energy that you are open to receiving. I think that's the most important and most influential thing of anything that you're going to take in life whatsoever. And I, and I think if you if you want to be anywhere in life whatsoever it is almost impossible to do it on your own. And unless you surround yourself with people who have the same kind of vision as you, not even necessarily people who are already successful, but people who have the same vision and the same positivity and the same get up and go energy rather than just self-pity and, you know, the the world owes me everything. You need people like that around you and you're not going to do it on your own. And it's okay to accept that you're not capable of doing it on your own. Like that, that is okay. And again, it's, it's keeping the ego in check of, look, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent of this puzzle and I'm going to need other people to help me get to where I get to because I'm not perfect at everything. And your network is everything. And if it wasn't for the people that I've got around me, my friends, my family, the people that I've met through business who I've gone on to consider friends, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be 5% of what I am now. Everything in your life that's happened positive and negative has happened because of who you're networking at the time. Simple as that. Like when you break it down and I think that's a great thing for people to understand because they can see from this how those 1% moves that they make in their own life will, will change the direction of it. And I think that is a powerful thing to, to realize. And I hope a lot of people who listen to this realize that because there's things that people who listen to this are compounding in the wrong direction, whether it be in, whether it be in their health, their mindset, their surroundings and everything. So I think, I think this will help a lot of people move, move through that. But mate, I appreciate your time. And guys, do me a solid favor, yeah? If you got the value out of this, share it with your friends, like and subscribe on all the platforms, YouTube, Apple, Spotify. I appreciate all of you and much love. Thank you, my man. Thank you, my brother. Guys, do me a solid favor. Drop a comment below this video and let us know who you want on the podcast next. <laughs>